so tell me what you want, what you really, really want. I wanna, I wanna, I wanna, I really, really, really wanna zig a zig ah. Here, get your future, forget my past. If you wanna get with me, better make it fast. Well, don't go my precious time. So tell me what you want, what I really, really want. I wanna, 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 wanna. I really, really, really wanna zig a zig ah. Don't you wanna be my friend? Make it last forever. Friendship never ends. If you wanna be my lover. And we're back! You have got to give. I've got to cut all that out now! <laughs> Six-7W classified top secret subject is Ages Comics Comic Books An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude. We can make them better than they were before. Better, stronger. Welcome back to Hey Kids Comics. I am the elder Leyland. I'm the younger Leyland. Pit the younger. I'm Leyland the younger. I'm the walrus. I am the Eggman. Cuckoo kachoo. Indeed. I am Andrew Leyland. I'm Michael Leyland. There we go. A um, couple of bits of business before we get into the meat of tonight's show. Whereby we will be covering the awesome second half of Darwin Cook's New Frontier. Just kidding. I should covering something else. Yes, we're going to cover something completely different from the 90s. Yeah. Oh, we're not. We've changed that, man. Um, I don't normally plug professional podcasts, for want of a better word. Professional? Yeah, that are done by celebrities. Oh, right. Because okay. they get far more listeners than we do. They don't need the plug-in. Mm. But Kevin Smith's Fat Man Meets Batman podcast, where he interviews Mark Hamill for three hours, is awesome. Okay. Mark Hamill's brilliant. Okay. I've got a man crush on Mark Hamill. Kevin yeah. Smith can talk. Yeah. Mark Hamill out-talked Kevin Smith. Okay. So it was quite a good list. Yeah. I heartily recommend it. It's well worth listening to. Does he still have a voice? He does the Joker voice at various stages throughout the thing, because the whole thing's about the Joker. There's very few mentions of Star Wars. Right. It's all about his love of comics and how he got the role of the Joker and stuff like that. Yeah. So, very so good. his voice hasn't died on him yet? No, no, no. Which, he is, has which said, is why he quit doing it anyway, wasn't it? Yes, but he has said that there's talk of doing... You know one of those direct-to-DC animated movies? Yeah. There's talk of doing The Killing Joke. Uh, and he has said that if they do The Killing Joke, he would come back and do The Joker for that one, but that would be it. Okay. That would be his swan song. Okay. I'd quite like to hear Mark Hamill do that. The Killing Joke. Yeah. I think and they should use Kevin Conroy as Batman I'm if that's going to be Mark Hamill's last appearance. I'm to see how they're going to convert The Killing Joke to a... All friendly family. Have you not watched any of these DC animated movies? No. They're all PG-13. Are they? Yeah. But Killing Joke, we see these two... They would, they would have to show that in such a way that you didn't see the graphicness There's of it. But they showed, of well, they showed Robin's music. parents dying well, off-camera in the animated show, so I can show they could find a way around crippling Batgirl. 
not only that, but not only do you see Barbara Gordon graphically naked, you, you see Jim Gordon graphically no, naked. You see Jim Gordon's winking. No, you it's don't. in the very bottom no. corner of a page, but you see it. Uh, they wouldn't put that in the show. I'm pretty sure. Uh, secondly, last night Gordon's we teased. Pipe. Yes, we don't want to. We don't want to puff on Gordon's pipe. Um, last night, last night, last week, we teased that we may be joining Two True Freaks. Uh, there have been discussions with the mighty Scott Gardner and the mighty Chris Honeywell for all those people that have been asking for our older episodes which are no longer available, alas, because it would cost me an extra $200 or something to put them up on Podomatic and I just don't have that kind of money. Um, They have said that we will introduce them onto the Two True Freaks feed for them to be archived forever. And ever. So thank you very much, guys. We'll be immortalised. We will be immortalised forever Mm. instead of just this transitory thing that we puff out into the ether only to disappear forever it will now be archived forever along with those guys so you'll have to go we'll give you more details as near the time but uh, you should be listening to that anywhere of those shows because there's about 400 of them yeah yeah comics monthly monday's always good laugh back to the bins is excellent and chris does a brilliant funny book underbelly podcast all about independent and underground comics which is well worth a listen it's really good so we'll be up there soon, putting up our old episodes. I don't want to call them Hey Kids Comics Classics, because yeah. that seems a bit pretentious, doesn't it? Just. The old ones. Just call them the old. It's another word for old, isn't it? Classic. If TV Gold had a radio station. Yeah, if, if Dave <laughs> was an internet radio channel, yeah. that's where they would, they would be. Emails this week, of which we have many, so I have no idea how long this episode's going to run. But Michael Bailey emailed. Two emails, because he missed out last week. Maybe even be three, I can't remember. Night's End Part 1 is the title. To the two guys that have the same last name, but different first names, and one is older than the other. I see what he did there. I see what he did there. Mm. Never let it be said that you people half-ass anything. I think think we half-ass an awful lot, don't we? Uh, When most podcasts read emails containing links, the hosts usually just glaze right over and move on. Not the Leylands. They dive right in and we get to see the reactions to the videos as they happen. This was very entertaining and I feel I must apologise for the kid video song as it was pretty bad. Yes! Our reactions were edited on that one. But it was, it was funny. We'll, we'll go with that. Seriously though, that was very entertaining. Thank you very much, Michael. We're glad you enjoyed it. That was spontaneous, wasn't it? It was. It was just, a, should we click on these links? <laughs> yeah, okay. You don't have to watch it now, but here is the original opening to G.I. Joe the movie. It's pretty epic. At least 11-year-old me thinks it is. I well, think we're watching that. I think we would be remiss yeah. if we didn't, given the nice things he just said to us. So this is the G.I. Joe intro movie from 1987. It's three minutes long. Oh, it's a Marvel Productions thing. I was not aware of that. Welcome back to the 80s. <laughs> so this was a G.I. Joe animated movie. That's Perzu. Apparently, uh, the G.I. Joe come from France. No, they don't. That's New York. That was a French flag, though, wasn't it? I don't know, I'd have to rewind it, we don't want to do any of that, do we? I'm liking this song already. On board the helicarrier. It does look like a shield helicarrier. What was, what, what happened there? Oh, I see, we saw a cross shot of his ass, and then he bounced back up as he opened up his uh, parachute. Excellent. No, we had, we had to look him in the eye after looking at his crotch. Actually, I quite like this song. It's quite toe-tapping. When was this made? 1987? So, yeah. 
So we're deep into power, power punk 80s. Yeah. It sounds like something that would have been at home in Rocky IV. Oh. Is he wearing a rocket pack? That doesn't burn his legs off. Well, the Rocketeer's rocket pack doesn't burn his legs off, does it? No one ever sees me, but... <laughs> Get out! <laughs> Honestly, this doesn't look appalling. Doesn't look great. Oh, I'm disagreeing with you. I think this looks pretty cool. This is a very... Hey, here we go, Transformers. It's not Transformers, is it? They've got, like, aeroplane things that attached to the back. Oh, come on, that's cool! He's got, like, a li- mini little jet engine attached to his back with wings and everything. And he's got... And he's in a mini helicopter! Fighting around the Statue of Liberty! Right, the Statue of Liberty is going to come alive now and go to Ghostbusters. Oh, that thing. would be... Oh, that <laughs> would just add extra levels of awesome. <laughs> A guy just swung in from somewhere and kicked a bunch of terrorists off the Empire State Building. Oh, no, I'm sorry, this looks pretty damn good. The only problem with this, Michael, is yeah. we're watching this now and we're going to start enjoying getting stopped talking. Oh, he looks very That's 80s, Chuck doesn't he? Norris. It's Chuck Norris. Ah, uh, Chuck Norris. And now the speedboats! Oh, this is this. Let's throw everything into the opening credit. And a girl. And a black guy. So to- that token cross. Token. Is that Victoria Hand? I don't know who that was. But they all got laser blasters because of standards and practices. Oh, he's got rid of the bomb. Yeah, they've been planted on the Statue of Liberty. And he's going to go play on the helicarrier. Bye bye, Cobra helicarrier. The helicarrier looked like the Battlestar Galactica. Uh, and he's a Japanese girl, apparently. Well, they always have weird voices. He's a Japanese heavy metal girl. <laughs> and the Statue of Liberty's glowing now. Yeah, they've, they've lit up her helmet. Okay. I'm, I'm, I thought I was pretty damn good. I want to watch the rest of that film. But alas, we have a show to record. So uh, exactly. we can't do that. Thank you very much, Michael. Couch Potato presents yes, G.I. Joe. G.I. Joe, the movie. I quite enjoyed that. That was quite fun. Uh, quick heads up, if either of you ever decide, I won't want to give this movie a look, just watch the opening credits and turn it off. <laughs> You've seen the best part of the movie. The rest, as they say, is pants. Oh, well, we won't bother with the rest no. of that, then. Okay. And now on to Night's End. I love Night's End. I love this whole storyline, and while Night's End isn't my favourite chapter, it is a rather satisfying ending to the whole ordeal. For about a year or so, this story was something of an obsession as far as me trying to find the issues. I have picked up the back books off and on over the years, and one of the on-time periods happened just after Night's End went down. I was 18 in the summer of 1984, and fresh out of high school. I'm sure I meant 1994, though. I'm sure you weren't 18 in 1984, Michael. That would be just silly. That summer, Zero Hour hit, and suddenly I went from just collecting the Superman titles to buying a host of DC books, including most of the Bat books, minus Legends of the Dark Knight. For some reason, Night's End was not in the back issue bins of any of the comic shops in the area. It was kind of weird, actually. Every shop in the Lehigh Valley had pretty much the same back stock. Anyway, in the summer of 1995, Batman Forever hit, and I went to see it with my sisters. For some reason, we went to Toys R Us, and there I found a bunch of comics packaged up by storyline. There were Superman books from the time of the death and return, and, as luck would have it, two packs containing the entirety of Night's End. 
Reading it was a lot of fun. My favourite parts were those written by Chuck Dixon, who by that point was my favourite bat writer. There is a certain video game feeling to the story. Bruce trains and has to defeat a number of bosses before becoming Batman and going on to the final levels of the game. But at the same time, it works. One thing I didn't consider during my several readings of the story was something Andrew brought up. The story does feel a tad rushed, and Zero Hour probably had a lot to do with that. Bravo to Andy for editing together a fun Hulk out. I was laughing out loud at that one. I'm glad you liked that, Mike. That took quite a long time, so I'm pleased somebody enjoyed it. Thanks for covering this fantastic story, and I'm looking forward to part two. Regards, Mike. You have no idea what he's talking about, though, do you? Yeah, Because you, you don't me. listen to the show. You, you told me. Okay. About um, you thinking, preposterously thinking that all adverts were in colour. <laughs> Preposterously. Yeah. <laughs> what an absurdity. Uh, see, I bought all the night's stuff as it was coming out, so it's not something I've ever had to hunt down in the back end. You trekked to Manchester on your bike. Lee, on my bike. And got bragged absolutely bragged to them. Sweat through on the way home, and that issue is still water damaged to yeah. this day because I've never replaced it. And I went all the way to Preston on my bike for issue 500. But I think we mentioned all of that. We have done. When we did night for. Just brag about it, go through the. I biked a 40 mile round trip just to buy a comic. You, you may get a medal for that. Do you think? Just dedication. Yes, yes, yeah, I don't think so. I'd settle for a no prize. It'll mean as much as a knighthood in Canada, but I'm sure it'll mean something. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Charlie Niemeyer is our next emailer, and he sent one called Nights in Part 2. Yeah, see what they both did there. Yeah, that's very clever. They're in cahoots, I swear. <laughs> you think? Yeah. Hello, lovely Leylands. I do like that greeting. Mm. Tom Grummet is probably my favourite artist ever. Sure, he may not be perfect, but I love his interpretation of any character he draws. Even though it was only for a few panels, his version of Asbat is probably the best one I've yet seen. It's just a shame that Tom spread himself so thin between working on both Superboy and Robin at this point in time that he started having to have fill-in artists on both books. Also, the last page of Robin 8 was awesome. Uh, yes, it was. And we agreed wholeheartedly. I think Tom Grummet is a very underrated artist, particularly when he's been inked by Doug Hazelwood. Uh, my only disagreement with that, Charlie, I personally think Barry Kitson draws the best as bats. Yeah. That's just my humble opinion. Uh, but certainly Grummet drew a pretty good one. Better than a lot of the other ones that we covered in the show, didn't it? Uh, Charlie continues, the Catwoman issue was cool also, and I hated it. On one hand, it continued the story, and I enjoyed Jim Ballant's take on Asbats, and Catwoman, which, when I was 14, was awesome. I wonder why. Mm. I wonder what was awesome about Catwoman's appearance when you're 14 years old. He was a fashion entrepreneur. Was he? And that purple suit did it for him? Yeah. Okay, fair enough. The reason for the hatred, though, is I just don't really like Ballant's version of classic Batman, and it took seemingly forever to get the next issue of Batman. As for the bat armour turning red, I believe the idea is that Jean-Paul made it red like his Azrael costume and coloured it blue because this is more fitting for Batman. The flames burned off the blue paint, leaving only the red. Now, as for why the red paint didn't burn too, it's probably due to comic book physics and the water putting out the flames before the red paint could burn. I think you're stretching things yeah. a bit there, Charlie. It's, it's no prize worthy. I think it's just, it looks good. Yeah personally. Anyway, looking or forward... maybe there's a button which changes the colour. It changes the colour of his suit. Yeah. That would be pretty good. Anyway, looking forward to the final part of your night's end coverage. Keep up the good work, Charlie. Thank you very much. We appreciate that. Charlie Niemeyer, as we mentioned last week, does um, Superman in the Bronze Age. Our next email is from Michael Bailey. Night's end part two. Oh. Oh, do you know why that is? Because he just missed the cut-off line. 
Did it? Last week, yeah, we recorded on Thursday night, yeah. and Michael's email came through on Friday morning. Oh, okay. So we just missed the cutoff line. For, so last week, it seems like we didn't get an email from Michael, but we did. Mm. Mm. Hail and hello to the Leylands. At first, I thought about recording this email and sending it off to you as suggested in the latest episode, but in all honesty, I now write these emails with Andy's voice and cadence in mind. <laughs> I wonder how that works out for him when he hears it back. Yeah. I wonder if he goes, he butchered that line delivery. Now I have to write it as a butchered line delivery. Yes. Can you write in Northern England speak? Tother. E-I-E-T, lad. Buy it, young Northern lad. As I type the words, I picture in my head what it might sound like being read on the air. It's strange, but there it is. Instead of the usual ramblings, I actually have bullet points for this episode as I wrote them down. Sometimes at the red lights as I'm driving to and from work. That's dangerous, Michael. And we we don't encourage such things. At least he does it during the red lights. Unlike me, who has made stun stuff while I've been driving. That influence. Oh, dear me. So, here we go. Superstar DJ, here we go. Andy mentioned Spider-Man and his amazing friends, and I have to agree, as much as I loved that show as a kid, it does have some elements that make re-watching it a mixed bag. Some episodes are good. Some episodes have Wolverine with an Australian accent, which would be carried over to the animated Pride of the X-Men pilot. And this makes me laugh, since the man now most associated with the character in the hearts and minds of the public is an Aussie actor. I still hold the Hulk episode of Amazing Friends the best one ever. Tell me which one that is, Michael, and I'll watch it. Because I have downloaded <coughs> managed to get hold of a copy of them all. The Hulk episode of Amazing Friends? Yeah. I don't watch Amazing Friends. Not you. Oh, Michael right. Bailey. Well, don't look at me and say, tell me which one it is, I'm looking at you because it's polite to look at you while we're talking. It's not polite to ignore you while we're recording an episode. But you're talking to Michael and calling me Michael and telling... Do you see the confusion? You need a t-shirt, Mike 1 and Mike 2. Can I be Mike 1? Yeah. I agree with Andy's take on the Spider-Man animated series, continues Michael in his email. Michael Bailey in his email, not you. Mike B. Mike B. Mikey Mike B and the Funky Bunch. (laughs) While there are some fantastic elements to it, the show lacks the emotional depth that Batman the Animated Series had. On the other hand, I liked the continuity of the Batman show, just as Andy did, so it just goes to show that I can't be satisfied with anything but my marriage. Well, it's a good thing to be satisfied with. If you can find it cheap, track down the short story anthology book titled Ultimate Spider-Man. I wish you the best of like trying to find it on search engines these days, but this came out in 1995 and had some really solid Spider-Man stories in it, including a modernisation of the origin by Peter David, who had Doc Ock and Peter's origin happen at the same time, three years before Byrne did it. And frankly, Peter David made it work, whilst Byrne didn't. You mentioned another book you read by Diane Duane. Would that be the Lizard Sanction? If it is, let me know. I may have something for you. Is it the Lizard Sanction? It might be. Mm, okay. It had the Lizard and Venom on the cover. That would be the Lizard Sanction then, yes. So, um, Also, just as a quick aside, I need to thank Michael because he sent me Spider-Man Rock Reflections of a Superhero this week. Did it? The 1970s prog rock concept Spider-Man album. Are you happy now? It's very good. How, how long have you been Particularly the opening track forever. I saw it once in a shop and it was so hideously expensive I didn't buy it. How much? God, it was something like 20 quid, 25 quid. And I felt that was a bit much for a CD, even an import CD. But the opening track's brilliant. The rest of it's good, but the opening track in in specific is brilliant. Could it beat Bono any day? Pretty much, yeah. Peter Parker is definitely Catholic, continues Michael. I was raised Catholic, and one of the many personality quirks I still retain from the upbringing is assuming that everything is my fault and feeling guilty about it. If that ain't Peter Parker, I don't know what is. Uh, Has that been definitely stated? I want to know, is that definitive? Because I certainly believe him to be Catholic, 
he, he does have the guilt. Yeah. As we've mentioned on the show before, it would not be a surprise at all to find out that Peter Parker is Catholic. But if that's been definitely stated, can you point me to where that is, please? Because I'd love to see it in print. Uh, given the various origins of Spider-Man's bad guys, especially as written by James DeMatteis, it seems that most of them are driven by some sort of childhood abuse. Batman villains are usually normal people that have one really bad thing happen to them and that turns them into villains. So Spider-Man villains equals a bad childhood, and Batman villains equals a bad day. Mm, yes, yeah, see, they grafted that thing onto Two-Face, didn't they, in the animated series? What thing? That he was already slightly wacko. Did they? Yeah, he was already talking to Big Bad Harve before the acid spill that turned him into Two Face. But it is that one bad day that spilled him over. Oh, and the it? killing joke, isn't that the whole point of the killing joke? That the Joker believes it only takes one bad day to send somebody spiralling into madness. Yeah. So, so yeah. Well, what was it with Harvey Dent in the animated series? Was it the acid or was it the Paul Dini, um finger? He was already slightly unhinged. Because he did a black and white comic where he throws coal in his face after his girlfriend's sister kills his girlfriend. Yeah, in the Paul Dini, Bruce Timm animated series, he was always slightly unhinged. It always messed me up because both people did the animated series origin and then the Batman yeah. black and well, white origin. Well, that's the same with Mr. Freeze as well, isn't it? Yeah. That the Mr. Freeze origin ported over to the comics. I mean, this has now been retroactively ignored by New 52. Yeah. Although Nora is still around in some fashion. But it's not quite the same anymore. Um, Shadowhawk, at least the first three series, was rather good. I dug it when I read through them about ten years ago. If you find them cheap, give them a go. Alright, okay. G.I. Joe Special Missions wasn't so much a Legends of the Dark Knight book as it was a hey, we have a huge freaking cast of characters but Harmer likes to only focus on a few at a time so we're going to create another title to showcase the other 176 members of the Joe team even though some of the stories were god-awful type of book. I like most of the issues I have read, but will always prefer the main book because Harmer took a licensed property and turned it into a really good military-driven soap opera with grand themes and backstories that, while engaging, also made you kind of depressed when you think about them. Luke mentioned G.I. Joe Order of Battle. There was a funny little mistake in the second issue, or it could have been the third, I forget. Around 1986, they started bringing in real-life people to the Joe team, most famously Sergeant Slaughter, a wrestler from the WWF. The World Wildlife Fund. What the World Wildlife Federation? Have you not, doing, have you not seen those wrestlers? pandas? They're, well, they are pretty evil, oh, the yeah. pandas, aren't they? I would want to wrestle with one of them. <laughs> they look so cute and cuddly in the logo as well, don't they? And then they bite your face off. Yeah. Hmm. I'm kidding, I know what the WWF is. They also have a male... <laughs> Stop it. It's a legitimate sport. They also had a mail-away figure for an American football player named The Fridge, which I would label as infamous. Apparently, they were also in talks to get, of all people, Rocky Balboa on the Joe team. You would think they would have chosen John Rambo, as that property got its own toy line and animated series a few years later. I am working on the assumption that the rights were tied up. Anyway, the Order of the Battle had an entry for Rocky, as apparently a really good boxer that got lucky is the guy you want to teach boxing to a group of the most highly trained killing machines in the world. This would be like bringing in the Karate kids to teach the SAS martial arts. <laughs> wax on, wax shut it! The SAS would just end him, wouldn't they? They won't take any gump. Anyway, apparently the Order of Battle people jumped the gun because in the next issue they had to print a retraction. Don't get me wrong, I like the Rocky films quite a bit, even the fifth one, but still, that's damn silly. Yeah, I don't think the fifth Rocky film is anywhere near as bad as everyone says it is. There's no 
There's no Proper boxing, boxing match, match in it. In it no. Well, there's a bit of one with machine but it's not Rocky, or whatever, though. isn't it? No. There's the fist fight at the end in the street. Yeah. That's Rocky. But yeah, I don't think Rocky Five is as bad as everyone says it is. Okay. I think it's a better film than Rocky Four, but Rocky Four is more fun. Yeah. But Rocky Five is a better actual film. Okay. In that it's not just a rehash of the Rocky Three, which is what Rocky Four is. It's not a Rocky film though, really. Mm. No. But it's not awful. If you want to see the paging question, click on the following link. Right, I don't think that's going to work on an audio podcast, but we'll have a we look can, at it. We can describe it. And see if we can make fun of it in some way. Rocky Balboa was almost a G.I. Joe. Planned packaging art. It's Rocky... In Gladiators. In Gladiators. <laughs> yes, it's a picture of Rocky as if he was in Gladiators. Gladiators. I don't know if America got Gladiators. Well, Bill Hicks only talks about it a lot. All oh, right, did they call it American Gladiator? Probably, yeah. Is that the same show? Right, okay. I don't think we can take the mick out of that any more than it already has done. <laughs> I, I urge you to go and search that picture out on uh, WordPress. Metalmisfit.wordpress.com. Rocky Balboa was almost a G.I. Joe. Tom Grummet is indeed an awesome artist. Yes, yes, he is. You guys had some fun taking the piss out of Batman adopting Jason Todd after he caught the kid stealing his tyres. While I laughed, I also had a knee-jerk reaction of, well, Bruce took him in because he recognised the fact that he didn't do something right, then they would be facing this kid again a few years down the line. It's a good point. Mm-hmm. It's a valid point. We still took the piss out of it, though. It was one of the elements of the post-crisis Jason's origin that I really liked, and while it might seem like a lapse in judgement, it sets up the fact that Jason was Bruce's biggest mistake. He was arrogant enough to think he could train Jason to be Robin and have it be just like when Dick was in the role, but you can't capture lightning in a bottle twice. This is why Tim was such a great character, because they took the time, unlike the original Jason Todd, to set the character up and show what it took for him to become Robin. Tim Drake was a much better Robin than Jason Todd. Yeah. Jason Todd was a bit cack. Jason Todd was, he was better actually in his, I've just ripped off Dick Grayson's origin. I quite enjoyed that Jason Todd. Mm. But I can see why they changed him, to make him more current, I suppose. I absolutely disagree about the Nightwing costume that appears in Night's End. I loved it, especially as drawn by Tom Grummet. Certain artists couldn't pull it off, but I liked the look. On a side note, if you follow the following link, you will see one of the first action figure versions of this costume where it looks as if Nightwing is in the middle of tossing off. <laughs> I don't know that we want to look at that. I've seen it, it's fun. Oh, yes. No, scroll down and see that yes. little figure. I'm, I'm sorry, mate. That costume's off. Oh, my. But, oh, my. Not, well, That's just not right. <laughs> yes, Nightwing is indeed in his packaging, looking like he's pulling his pud. Yeah. He, no, he, I hate that costume. He is entitled to his opinion, after all, we can't make him right. Oh! <laughs> no, I, I don't like that costume at all. I don't think even George Perez made that costume work. Sorry, I much prefer the one he's got now. Yeah. And the one he had in his own series. Which is the same, really. But red and blue instead of red and red and black. Mm. Or black and red instead of black and yeah. blue. You know what I mean, yeah. Red and I, blue sorry, and red I, and black. I, I still, I'm not a fan of that Nightwing costume. I, I want to see the red and blue costume. Spider-Man? Um, when Andy made the Stretch Armstrong gag, my first thought was, man, is Armstrong stretching the next week? Damn you, family guy. I've been playing the SNES Death and Return of Superman game you mentioned. It is much harder than it should be. (laughs) While Andy doesn't seem to hate the Shadow movie, I do feel the need to defend it. I thought it was a really fun movie that rode the line between camp and tongue-in-cheek rather well. Alec Baldwin was really good in the role and seemed to be having fun. Then again, I don't have a personal connection to the character, so take my opinion for what it's worth. I I didn't hate the Shadow movie. A couple of people mentioned this to me. I I liked the film, okay? It was fine for what it was. It was not as good 
as the other 90s superhero movies that came around that time, The Rocketeer and The Phantom. I like The Phantom. I liked The Phantom, and I love The Rocketeer. Of those three, it's quite silly. Yeah, but it's fun. Yeah. Whereas my problem with The Shadow was, he's not in it enough. I'm not paying to see Alec Baldwin, I'm paying to see The Shadow. Alec Baldwin. There was a scene after the opening credits where The Shadow takes out a bunch of bad guys on the bridge, and if the entire film had been that good... That would have been fine, but I didn't hate it at all. So. Uh, the three X-Men events you mentioned in the hot comics ads were actually all part of one storyline called The Phalanx Covenant. Life Signs and the other story titles were sub-arcs within the overall story. Doom's Four was a Liffield book that made some waves because it was immediately optioned by Steven Spielberg. That's about all you need to know about the book. It obviously never went anywhere. No. Uh, Troll was a Wolverine-type character that was in the Liffield-fueled book Prophet that was basically her homage to Jack Kirby. Haven't read the series and don't think I ever will. Normal Man was an indie book by Jill Valentino about a normal guy in a world full of superheroes. I've never read it, but I've heard good things. I've loved the Airwolf stuff. A lot of people loved the Airwolf stuff. Okay. Who'd have thought that a show that only ran two and a half seasons in the mid-1980s would be so fondly remembered by everyone but me? I remember one time in the morning me and Adam were sat there and you put a uh, wolf on and at the end of it you say, well, you can, you can tell you two enjoyed that. Why is that, Dad? Because you shut up. <laughs> you didn't talk for 45 minutes. No. Erwolf was a great show. Erwolf, the first season of Erwolf was really dark mm-hmm. and quite distressing and actually dealt with political intrigue and was really interesting. And then they softened it up with the second series whereas he wasn't going on government, covert government missions anymore. Mm. He was solving drink problems and stuff and they brought in a woman it turned into 18 18 months no it wasn't even as good as the 18 because it wasn't as funny so it didn't have the humour to ride over it the helicopter action stuff was still fun but the second series is overall quite weak apart from a couple of episodes the third season Mm -hmm. they gave up any pretense whatsoever that there was any political subtext and just made it a balls out action show and on that level the third season works very well because it's in the third season you get the episodes Erwolf versus Erwolf because every show does an evil twin episode Night Rider. Yeah, Night Rider. The car had an evil twin in Night Rider. So, so the third season's probably better than the second because it just says, "Screw this, we're just being an action adventure show." Still first tasking Yeah, well, and by the third season as well, Jan Michael Vincent is looking very worse for wear. His okay. drug addiction has obviously taken hold of. But maybe Stringfellow Hawk should teach him a lesson. Perhaps. Um, there's proof positive, I think, that a good theme tune will mm-hmm. carry you over anything. Everyone remembers a good theme tune. Okay. When you're growing up, you won't be able to go back and play that TV theme tunes game that we play in the pub, because none of your TV shows anymore have theme tunes. No. It's quite sad, really. That's it for this week, Leylands. Look forward to the wrap-up of Night's End. You be careful out there. Cheers, Mike. Thank you very much, Michael. I don't think I have to mention Michael does views from the long box and Comics Monthly Monday and Pad Smash and Radio KAL and lots of others. Do I? No. Okay. Tom Panarisi emailed in with Night's End Part 2. Hello, Leylands. Hello, Tom. I just finished your second Night's End episode and wanted to write and say that I really enjoyed it and point out that yes, I always got the impression that Asbat's costume changed from blue to red as a result of being caught in the fire and even when I was a teenager I thought that was absolutely the most ridiculous thing about the story. But now that I'm older and more mature and thinking about this character being a satirical sort of commentary on the ridiculousness of the comics at the time, having Asbat's costume become red was pretty brilliant. After all, what's more in your face hell death blood 90s than a top heavy, over-armoured, claw-gloved costume that Rob Liffield could draw because there's no details in the legs that is now an aggressive red or shall we say red hot I love uh, that that's really good that's the no prize winner is it yeah it's not no prize it's just ridiculous 90s over the topness I can go with that 
Anyway, I can't help but also comment on your remark that the cover version of songs are often lesser than the original versions, especially since they spent the majority of the beginning of the episode answering emails about Spider-Man Week, and did at one point mention that Spider-Man 3, which is, in essence, a cover version of the Black Costume Venom saga. Actually, I'm going to interrupt Tom, though. Technically, Spider-Man 3 is a cover version of a cover version of the Spider-Man Black Costume saga. Because essentially what Spider-Man 3 does is it adapts the cartoon adaption Mm-hmm. of the comic book story. So you're getting the Spider-Man black costume saga is three generations removed by that point. So that's a cover of a cover. So that's um, a bad boy band covering a song that a better band had already covered and made good because the original perhaps needed some improvement on. Fair enough. In my opinion. Well, you know, I was the other day I was looking through the Ultimate Spider-Man Venom. Yeah. And I'm looking through it and I'm going... I can't decide whether it is a cover or not. Because, yeah, it's a cover of the Venom storyline, but at the same time, everything about it's different. He's known Eddie Brock his entire life. Gwen Stacy's in it. The the origin of Venom's completely different. So you're saying the ultimate Spider-Man Venom story mm-hmm. is the Battlestar Galactica yeah. of cover versions, yeah. in the sense that it's a complete stripped-down retelling of the basic core concept. Oh, yeah. Right, fair enough. Now, my experience with Spider-Man is cursory at best, continues Tom, but it seems to me that this is one of the most covered stories in the character's history, aside from, say, his origin. I personally prefer the original, but I do have to give a nod to the way Venom was handled in the first season of the spectacular Spider-Man cartoon, Mm -hmm. which seemed to borrow a little from the original alien costume saga, as well as the ultimate Spider-Man, with Eddie Brock being a childhood friend of Peter Parker's, and his resentment for Spider-Man building up slowly over the course of the season, until Peter shakes off the symbiote and it bonds with Eddie. For a kid's cartoon, it was pretty good psychologically, story with a good amount of scurriness in parts. I mean, as far as covers go, it's not exactly Jimi Hendrix covering all along the Watchtower or Metallica covering Stone Cold Crazy, but it's pretty good. Yeah, Spectacular Spider-Man. We've not mentioned Spectacular Spider-Man, have we? That's a damn good cartoon. If we ever get to finish it. We need to finish season two. I'm just going to watch them all again. When I finish 90s Spider-Man, I'll watch all the Spectacular Spider-Man again. You're going to watch 90s Hulk and 90s X-Men? No. I don't think so. I used to like X-Men. Yeah, well, I used to like X-Men as well. When I was at Nan and Grandad's, they had Fox Kids. And That's what you used to watch on the spot. They used to be on back-to-back, didn't they? Mm. Yeah. Keep up the great work. I can't wait for the next episode. Best, Tom. Thank you very much, Tom. It's always a pleasure to hear from you. P.S. Thanks for reminding everyone how awesome the Erwolf theme is. For my money, it's right up there with the themes to the AT, Miami Vice, Knight Rider, and my favourite 1980s instrumental TV show theme, Magnum P.I. Classics all. Mm. Yeah, see... It's not an instrumental with you, though. Magnum P.I. Magnum Private Eye. P.I. Magnum P.I. There is no song. The best use of uh, his voice yeah. as an instrument. Though. Yeah, I did you say that every TV show that is instrumental in some way has to have the title of the tune that can be sang as part of that tune. Yep. Superman by John Williams. Superman. Superman. There you go. Sister Superman. Yeah. And uh, Battlestar Galactica. Battlestar Galactica. See, it works. Oh, but, so stuck. <laughs> no, it doesn't work with the new no, one, because no. the new one wasn't a tune, but the A-Team, the A-Team. See? Batman, Batman. No, that, 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 no. You see, you've, you've blown me there, haven't you? You've, you've slaughtered my head. Night Rider, Night Rider, Night Rider. See? Works a treat. Anyway, after Michael's going to go through every TV theme tune that he knows and come back to us with one that doesn't match that. Even Coronation Street matches that template. 
Coronation Street. See? Star Trek. Next generation. Star Trek, the next generation. Star Trek, the next generation. It pushes it a bit like that, doesn't it? Deep Space Nine, Deep Space Nine. We don't have to do that one. I know. That email. Uh, Charlie emailed, you know, we're going to do it anyway. Okay. Charlie Niemeyer emailed us, thanks for playing my promo in your latest episode, but I have a new one now, so here you go. Well, thanks very much for that, Charlie. We're going to play it. Uh, we will play that promo in our promo should, should section. We comment over it like it's the Muppet Show. <laughs> we're walled off and Statler. <laughs> I don't like this promo. It's better when we did it. Chris Keith emailed in. Hello, Chris. I don't think Chris has emailed into the show before. Has he not? I don't believe so. It's nice to hear from you, Chris. I do like the alliteration, though. Of his name? Mm. It's great, I don't know. Mm. Hello, gentle Leyland. See how I totally sidestep the order of greetings. Very clever. Mm. Michael approves. I consider myself to be a rough Leyland, though. Do you? Mm. <laughs> I'm not going anywhere near that. <laughs> I was just finished listening to all of the Spider podcasts and Michael Bailey's most recent Views episode from an alternate dimension. While I've been reading Spider-Man chronologically for the last few weeks, your shows have really made me step it up. I just finished issue 125 of Amazing, which means that I have finished the death of Gwen and am now moving closer to the um, wedding of Dr. Octopus and Aunt May. Just thinking about it makes me want to curl up into a ball. Anyway, I'd never read the death in sequence, just as a special that Marvel put out in the early 90s. Whilst the story itself is enjoyable, re- reading it in context reveals a few issues. Number one. Prior to issue 121, Harry is nowhere near crazy. In fact, as the story with Richard Raleigh in 116 through 118, he's acting the same old Harry. Out of the blue, in issue 119, when Peter is headed to Canada, he makes mention of Harry acting differently. As of 121, it's almost shoehorned in that Harry is back to his pilly, pilly, pill ways, and Norman is spontaneously crazy. I know they both have histories of this behaviour, but the transition was very forced. Yeah, I'll give you that. I mean, they didn't really have story arcs back then in the way that we have them now. However... I will just put this out as a little defence. Issue 116 through 118 of The Amazing Spider-Man are actually re-edited and slightly re-scripted version of Spectacular Spider-Man magazine number one. So that story was originally published the year before it actually saw printed Amazing Spider-Man or thereabouts, and they cut it up a bit, changed some of the dialogue, and added some new pages to make it fit into the current continuity of the regular Spider-Man book. So that could be why he seems like he's the same old Harry in 116 through 118, and then suddenly goes through this startling metamorphosis in 119. Also, if you have ever had a member of your family that is a drug addict, which we have, they can just suddenly snap back to type all of a sudden. So it's something that I didn't give much thought to as a kid, but having had that experience as an adult, it is something that I can buy a lot more readily now, because it is something that does just happen sometimes overnight and they do change personality and and all of that stuff so I will give that a bit of a pass but I do get what you're saying um, and I do think that's just down to scripting of the time to be honest with you number two post 122 is where I have the real issue Chris continues 123 is the funeral for Gwen with Luke Cage and Spider-Man fighting it's an okay issue but not really my favourite it's got good artwork though that one Yeah. yeah Luke Cage comes after him because obviously the Daily Bugle is blaming Spider-Man for Gwen's death yeah. and there's a price on his head and all that. Luke Cage is a hero for hire right. so Luke Cage goes after him 124 through 125 is Man Wolf with John Jameson an incredibly bad 70s costume <laughs> yes 
In this story, issue 125, Flash and Randy Robertson are commenting that MJ is sullen and depressed and that Peter must be rubbing off on them. Immediately after this conversation, Harry comes into the coffee shop and is sullen and depressed, warranting the same response. MJ has to actually chastise these two ass clowns due to the fact that they are ridiculing Peter and Harry. I've always thought that Flash was a douche, but to harass Peter basically one week after his potential future wife died, and Harry one week after his father died, is too much. Then to top it off, MJ scolds Peter for being depressed when he comes over to her house. She essentially gave Peter a week and change, she says a week or so, but it's clearly not a substantial amount of time, to get over losing the love of his life, and she can only pull herself out of the clubs for so long to be a human being. I've always wondered what he saw in the chick. I'm still wondering. Right. Okay. Well, he's not anymore. No, 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 no. Um... I don't disagree with this. Harry, um, Rob, Robbie, Robbie, Randy and Flash were ass clowns. I'll give you that. My thinking with MJ, and why I'm going to give her a bit of a pass on this, is twofold. One, prior to Amazing Spider-Man 121, Mary Jane was always established as being the party girl atmosphere who didn't stick around for problems. She didn't do problems, she didn't do other people's problems, she got the hell out of Dodge whenever there was a problem. Okay. At the end of Amazing Spider-Man 122, there's a lovely little page at the end of that issue. Do you remember this? It's not in the annual that we've got, the British reprint. It's cut out of that. Okay. The last page of the issue, Peter goes home mm-hmm. after he's done everything he's done with Gwen and Goblin and he goes home to be on his own and just cry because Gwen's dead. Okay. And Mary Jane's waiting for him. And Peter tears a strip off Mary Jane and he tells her, that, what do you care about people like me and Gwen? You'd never cared about anyone in your life. Get out, Mary Jane. Mm-hmm. Just leave me alone. And she doesn't leave. She goes to the door. She puts her hand on the door handle to leave. And she turns around and goes back to him. Because she realises that what he said is said in bitterness and anger. And he's not really, he doesn't really mean it. And also he's her friend and he needs her. Despite what he just said. And Murray Jane's willing to put that back uh-huh. and help Peter out. My excuse, if you will, my no-prize excuse for the way that she behaved in this issue that Chris is talking about, is that it has been a week now. It's not a substantial amount of time, but my personal thinking is that Murray Jane is a woman. And what Peter said got under her skin, because he was right. What he said was not incorrect. But it's been bubbling around in her brain for over a week now and festering. And I personally take that as that bubbling over and her snapping a bit. And I think it's perfectly understandable. If you carry on reading them, Chris, Jerry Conway does some of the best work with Murray Jane ever in that run. And I believe it's largely because of him that Murray Jane is such a fondly remembered character. He does an awful lot of character development with Murray Jane in the coming weeks and months and issues as you go through with it. So I think you will get to a point where you see what he sees in her. As Conway strips away the veneer of what Murray Jane is and reveals there's a lot more to her than meets the eye. She's the Optimus Prime of the Spider-Man universe. Like I said, reading just the story was enjoyable, but taken as a whole, Peter would be better served getting some new friends. (laughs) I don't disagree with that. (laughs) That's all I have for this round. Enjoying the show as always, and now you have me up to a fantastic cast and 20-minute long box. Stephen owes me money. The podcast (laughs) list just keeps growing and growing and growing and growing. Take care, Chris Keith Garland, Texas. Well, thank you for emailing in, Chris. Very good, I enjoyed that. Kenneth Laster has emailed us in. Kenneth Laster has sent us audio feedback. Should we play Kenneth's audio feedback? Okay. Hey guys, this is my, my umpteenth recording of this email thing. But yeah, 
I decided to take you up on your suggestion to the audience about audio emails. So, yeah, I was just had a few things I want to bring up. Uh, yeah, uh, there's this uh, parody sort of humor musical about Batman, which I thought is relevant to your nights in coverage. Uh, called Holy Musical Batman. It's a bit rude, I guess. Uh, <laughs> we like rude. Uh, I don't know what rude means over in England, but it has a lot the same of thing. language. And, uh, yeah, I find it funny, but you know, that's your own opinion. If you do, you can check it out. Uh, um, Send us a link! Yeah, there's also storyline going on the current Batman title. Never heard of it. It's the Court of the Owls. I think it's really awesome. But, you know, that's, I was wanting to get your opinions, because in my mind, there are a few definite bad arcs that you need to read. Uh, one being Knights, the Knights Trilogy, which I haven't read, and one being The Killing Joke, which I have read, and another, uh, Cameron Rush, which I read multiple times. Uh, yeah. I was wondering if you guys would think The Court of the Owls by its end would be up there with the rest of them. Um, awesome. Right, we'll pause, though. Right. Um, you're not a fan of The Killing Joke, are you, Michael? I'm really not, no. Why do you not like The Killing Joke, Michael? It's, I didn't find The Killing Joke of... I'm very disappointed with everything of Alan Moore's that I ever read, because... Everything! Even that issue of DC Comics Presents he wrote with Superman Meets Swamp Thing, which is my personal favourite of his Superman no, stuff. Everything that I've ever heard of him doing, I've been disappointed with. If it's something I've not heard anything about, and I pick it up, and it's quite enjoyable, even though I dislike Alan Moore as a person, but... Okay. I'm well, sure he's a lovely man. But for all the works... Like Viva Vendetta and Watchmen and Killing Joke, I'm very disappointing because everyone speaks so highly of them, and they have this rank like really far up here. Mm. And I read them, I just they're so disappointing because I don't think they're great stories. See that, and I have a problem in my school where I've been growing up reading comics, and then it's become this big thing, and everyone's reading Batman comics. Oh, really? Which one? Killing Joke, Killing Joke, Killing Joke. Oh, I read that Killing Joke. It's well good. <laughs> See. I see your point. I, I take on board what you're saying. There is this cachet of fans that think that Alan Moore walks on water mm-hmm. and that everything he touches is gold. Yeah. And you're at the the point where everything he touches you have been told is gold. Yeah. So when you read it, you can't help but be disappointed with it. And I don't disagree with you. I've read some of his stuff. That 1963 miniseries, which I thought was just pretentious tosh. Yeah. Is awful. Um, I read The Killing Joke when it first came out, this and it's got lovely artwork. The artwork's good, yeah. My problems with The Killing Joke are that it does irreparable damage to the Batman universe and then ends with Batman and the Joker having a laugh I've after he's too. just crippled yeah. Barbara Gordon and humiliated James Gordon. You go back to regular Bat books after that, yeah. and he hates him again. Yeah. And it's it's one of those things to me. I think Alan Moore only did it just to be oh look at me, her duh, look at what I'm doing. He, well, he, apparently he has regretted doing that yeah. since. But and I have the same problem I have with whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow, which mm-hmm. is so as I say, my favourite Alan Moore Superman story is that issue of DC Comics Presents with Swamp Thing because it's just another Superman story. Yeah. 
and he has to work within the confines of what that means. Whereas I personally am of the opinion that it's very easy. And I'm not diminishing any writer that has ever done this. Because being able to write is a phenomenal talent. I love writing myself. but So I know it's not easy. But I feel it is much easier to come in, kick the apple cart over, mess everything up, and then get the hell out of Dodge and leave it for other writers to fix. It is also easy to come in and write the last story of anything. Because you can do what you want. You can kill whoever you want to because it's the last story. Mm-hmm. It is much harder to come in and write Batman or Superman or whatever on a monthly basis and make it good every month. Mm-hmm. And that's where my opinion of Alan Moore differs from everyone else. For me, he has never come in, in American comics anyway, yeah. and written a solid run on something that I've read. I know he did a bit of Green Arrow backup strips in Detective Comics where he has turned out excellent work on a regular basis. His future shocks in 2000 AD were brilliant, but again, they were little Twilight Zone five-page stories. He didn't have to build up a continuity. Watchmen was 12 issues and done. League of Extraordinary Gentlemen's a couple of miniseries and done. That is ammunition for my argument. Yeah, we'll see. So he's never come in and wrote Superman for four years and wrote four years' worth of excellent Superman stories. Mm -hmm. He came in and wrote the last Superman story where he killed everybody off. He came in and wrote a Batman story where he crippled Batgirl, humiliated Commissioner Gordon. He didn't come in and write an excellent series of Batman stories and earn the right to come in and kill everyone off. So that's my... I I understand why the killing joke is held in high esteem. My problem with um, Alan Moore as well is everything he says about um, he's a hypocrite. to keep his own characters You titles. think he's a hypocrite, don't you? I, I think he's very hypocritical, yeah, because right. he's writing things such as League of Extraordinary... Uh, yeah, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Which is other people's characters. Everything about it is, the second volume mm-hmm. is not only do you have the main characters, which are all other people's characters, but it's set in H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds mm-hmm. and um, Rupert Burr's in it as well. Is he? Yep. Put Burr? Although he's a demon monster thing. I really don't want to read them now. No, he's, he's not. not. He's not butchering Put Bar. I'm sorry. I'm not having all that drill. Um, <laughs> Hush so, that was good. Yeah. See, um, Michael. I think you and Kenneth are roughly the same age. Yeah. So all the story arcs, Michael. I mean, we'll listen to the rest of his email. Sorry to interrupt you there. Well, we're not going to finish the Batman stuff now. What's the Batman stuff? Oh, Court of Owls. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Sorry about that. We'll carry on with your email in a minute. Um, Michael gave me all of the Court of Owls on. The Night of Owls. The Night of Owls. I've been reading Batman and Nightwing as part of the New 52 and quite enjoying them. But with the Court of Owls thing, Night of the Owls, Mm -hmm. uh, I bought them all for Michael and I said, right, give me the whole thing when it's finished. I'll read it all in one. Uh, What Michael did... No, I didn't bother reading Red Hood. The only issue we've not got is Red Hood 9, so I didn't read that. Uh, Michael not only gave me all the issues, he put them all in order for me and wrote me a timeline... So that if I wanted to, I could actually switch between issues and read them all in, in chronological order. So I read it. Because they all take place, one story will take place at 6.41am. The problem is, like, three issue issues at 7.30am. Three of them, yeah, take place simultaneously, don't they? Mm. Alfred puts out a call. That girl's a pain in the ass for doing that. Is it? Yeah. Right. But Alfred puts out a call to all the all of the Batman's aides in Gotham and lets them know the, the Court of Owls. And they all answer this call in each of their individual books. So three or four of them all take place simultaneously. Mm. It's an excellently well-orchestrated crossover. It is. I personally, I think we're going to have to go... What we said with Nightfall, the Nightfall trilogy, was the Bat books wouldn't do a crossover that good again till No Man's Land. 
Yeah. Well, they really did. Well, they were all coordinated very well. They haven't done one as good as that until now. Yeah. I think Court of Owls is really that good. Everything links up together. Everything syncs. It's really well done. To even the not so good issues. As yeah, well. I, I didn't think much of the Birds of Prey issue because I don't read Birds but of Prey. But as a whole, but as a whole, yeah. I'm thoroughly enjoying it. I got to Batman issue ten. Yeah. Oh nine. Um, Attempt. Issue 10. I forgot everything I'd ever told. Uh, well, I, 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 didn't, I didn't listen to you mainly because I don't want to ruin the story, even inadvertently. So I got to the end of issue 10 and it says to be continued. And I just went, that's not the end of the story! Well, and it, it continues into Batman 11 and 12, doesn't it? Don't so that, well, 12 is an epilogue and a look forward yeah. to the future. So, so on the whole, I've been th- I've thoroughly enjoyed that story. Of the new Fifty Two thus far, yep. I've, that's been my favourite story arc. Right. Flash is an All Star well, Western, and my two favourite monthly books. Yeah. But this, I think they've done a really good job with the Court of Owls and the Night of Owls stuff. Looking forward to the next two crossovers now. No. Justice League and Justice League Dark are crossing know. over it. Yeah, I don't want to know. The two books we're getting, the two books we're enjoying. I'm enjoying. Yeah, well, I've never read Justice League Dark. Animal Man and Swamp Thing are crossing over. We don't mind that. It's to the same writer, isn't it? It's no, it's Scott Snyder and, uh, and Jeff Lemire. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's too early to call if Night of the Owls, Court of the Owls, whatever. It's if it holds up. Is going to become a classic bat story. I personally, this is just me. I am of the opinion that something has to be at least five years old before you can even dare to call it a classic. Yeah. It has to to meet the standards of classic for me. It has to not only hold up as a story umpteen issues down the line but it has to have some kind of place in history Mm. like Blade Runner was universally ignored when it was released in the early 80s by the end of the 80s people were going actually that's a very influential film and actually really rather good Mm -hmm. and Superman the movie is another prime example if you go back and look at the reviews around town people thought it was crap no 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 no. everyone everyone gave it good reviews it did very well everyone preferred Superman 2 I prefer Superman 2. Because Superman 2 is what you expect from a comic book movie. It's a lot more comedy. It's a lot more jokey. It's a lot more campy. Mm. But over the years, as superhero movies became more appreciated with the 1989 Batman film and the Rocketeer, and they played them straight, ignoring Batman and Robin, obviously, (laughs) Superman the movie became better appraised Uh. when looked back on, and then generally became accepted as being the best of the lot. Okay. Because it's played straight. So uh, it's too early to say whether this will be considered an all-time Batman classic. But it was certainly an exceptionally good read, and I was very impressed with it, and I was really impressed with how well orchestrated it was. Yep. Should we go back to the email? Okay. I don't know if you guys have played this game, Lego Batman 2. It is just amazing and amazingness. I love it. But, yeah, I didn't plan on talking about that, but it just... Across my mind. I haven't seen my go back to it. I played the first one, um, which wasn't all that good. Yeah. I've heard good reviews of the second one. And it's got Superman in it. And Green Lantern. Oh, right. And Wonder Woman. Oh, cool. Mm-hmm. So, why did it not just call Lego Batman DC Universe? Or, or Lego DC Lego Universe? Lego Justice League. Yeah, something like that. Well, because more people will buy it if it's. It is Lego Batman. I've said before with like the killing joke, everyone knows Batman. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. And I've been listening to your podcast while I was doing it, so... Yeah, yeah that's what's in the background. Is it, um, uh, another thing is I want to talk about the new Amazing Spider-Man movie. Uh, it's about two weeks away from Spider-Man being... Spider-Man has a movie? Actually a week and two days away What's from that, being... Sam Raimi blockade. Oh, right. Over here in the United States of America. I was wondering if 
she had some pre-thoughts about it. Oh, do I? Uh, thoughts, depending on when you guys read this or listen to this on the air. Thanks, Kevin. Uh, I wish you were not a yeah, bit longer. <laughs> I think it's going to be an amazing movie. See what I did there? Or a very... We saw what you did, though. ...film. I think it's going to be Marvel team up. <laughs> I kind of think, I think it's going to be promising. I mean, it's definitely a new take, and the costume does kind of, at the first glance, look like a basketball with a Spider-Man themed basketball, but it grew on me. Um, and yeah, I was just wondering what you guys thought about that. I really enjoyed Spider-Man month, and I'm looking forward to the new 52 stuff. And Anything you Leylands do in the future. So, peace out, Vo Shizzle. <laughs> Leylands, yo. Uh, thank you very much, Kenneth. We greatly enjoyed that. Um, so, so, go on. What are your uh, opinions on the amazing Spider Man? I don't know where to begin. Well, um, let me go get a drink first. Uh, yeah, yeah, I may yeah, need to nip to the loo as well. Probably. Um, the costume sucks. Here we go. It really does. There is no improvement on a classic. Now, somebody has said to me on Facebook, well, Spider-Man's had many costumes. This is true. And I would have no problem with them, really, if within the story they had him wear different costumes that were completely different, like the black suit or whatever. I have no issues with that. The problem is they have redesigned a classic costume. That does work on screen. Yes, Sam Raimi proved. And even the 70s TV show. Uh, All the things we thought was bad about the 70s TV show, the costume was not one of them. The eyes were a bit. Yeah, but the costume still worked. Even in that raggedy, homespun way, that costume still worked. Because it was meant to be raggedy and homespun? Yeah, because it was meant to be raggedy and homespun, so it worked perfectly. They've not improved on a classic, though. They have pissed on something to make it theirs. And they've not made it better. The only reason that costume exists is to sell different toys. Which I don't understand, because some of the toys they've released from Amazing Spider-Man are brilliant. And some of the toys they quite crap. Six of them. None of them are the movie costume. It's the, the it's similar to the Ben Riley. costume. It's kind of a cross between the Ben Riley costume and, and Alex Ross's design Alex Ross's design for the, design for the Sam Raimi one, which Raimi correctly threw out the window and said, "No, the Steve Ditko original is fine." So that I, that has been a big hurdle for me because for me, the minute they change the costume just for the sake of it. You're, to me, they're not showing suitable amount of respect for the material they're adapting. Okay. Now, I accept that you're never going to do an outright adaptation of a comic story. It wouldn't work as a film. You couldn't film Amazing Fantasy 15. Wouldn't work. So I accept there is a certain amount of rejigging and retelling that's going on in telling the movie for the film. I have no problem with that. I have no problem whatsoever with the casting of Andrew Garfield. Andrew Garfield looks fantastic. There's been a couple of people pointing out... Have you read about his inspiration for it? What? Watching the Spider-Man. No, he was just joking when he said that, because he was on Five Live the other day as well, talking about... He knows some of the comic stuff and all that stuff. So Andrew Garfield looks fantastic. I would argue... He looks fabulous. He looks fantastic, sensational and spectacular. And amazing. And ultimate. And ultimate. I would argue, and web off, that he looks better as Peter Parker than Tobey Maguire. I never got Peter Parker from Tobey Maguire. I didn't dislike Tobey Maguire in the role at all. I thought he did an adequate job with what he was given. I didn't get a Peter Parker vibe from him. I'm getting that from Andrew Garfield. I think More of Andrew... an ultimate vibe. <laughs> yes. More of an ultimate ten years well, see, forward. If I too old to play him. This... No, I'm thinking this new one's more of an ultimate Spider-Man. 
yeah. than the old, than the Raimi ones. So Andrew Garfield, I have no problem with. I think Emma Stone's going to kick it out of the park as Gwen. How old is he? Like twenty. He's twenty-seven. And how old is he supposed to be? Seventeen. That may become an issue somewhere down the line that may, yeah. if they get a sequel, but whatever. Emma Stone looks great. Dennis Leary looks great, and the casting of Aunt May and Uncle Ben again, no problems. I've not seen them. Martin Sheen and Sally Field. I can live with that. Who's Martin Sheen? Martin Sheen is President Bartlett in the West Wing. And Sally Field was Abby Lockhart's mum on ER. And also, the girl that he picks up in Smokey and the Bandit. Oh, right. That's Sally Field. Okay. So I have no problem with any of the casting. And some of the special effects stuff that I've seen looks great. But I have subsequently been avoiding anything at all Mm. to do with the film. Because I don't want to go into the film and I've seen 25 minutes of it. Yeah. So since one of the trailers came out, I've, I've put an embargo on watching anything from it, and I'll go and see it at the cinema. So that, going to the cinema for well, that alone says they have turned me around because based on the original pitch of the costume, I wasn't going watching it. Yeah. They've turned me around and actually wanting to go and see it. The lizard looks god awful. He does. But the saving grace is he's played by Recifens, who is good in everything. Okay. So we're left with more pros than cons. So I am willing to go and see it. Still a number of cons. Well, we'll see. All right then. But we have turned it around, though, in terms of me wanting to see it. Luke Giaconetti emailed in. Aloha, Leylands. I like what he did there. Night's End continues on in the inevitable confrontation between Batman and Asbat. It was interesting they touched on all the peripheral books in order to get this done as quickly as possible. Crossing over to Catwoman is one thing, but Legends of the Dark Knight is something else altogether. But you do what you have to do when your editor tells you to do it, I guess. Bruce outsmarting Lady Shiva was an interesting approach to me, showing that he's not a bruiser, but a smart guy as well. Of course, that's all tossed out of the window when he trades fists with Asbat, which is just plain stupid. This is a criticism my wife often levels at Superman. Phenomenal cosmic powers, chooses to punch things. Oy vey. Anyway, I'm glad that their initial skirmish has given a spotlight issue to play out. Hopefully their final encounter will be a more smartly handled combat, though. No matter what the quality of these stories are, the simple fact that we have Batman fighting Asbats on Erwolf sounds awesome. Rock, rock, rock on. Erwolf again. Erwolf very popular for a two and a half season hit in the mid-80s. Some random notes. You should have cut in a few bars of Return of the Mac. That song was one of my anthems in high school, though I was never quite the Mac, and I don't think said Mac was ever returning. Erwolf! No further comment necessary except to say, Erwolf! Again. We're doing an Erwolf podcast now. We might, yeah. <laughs> Little Big League is a movie about a little kid inheriting a Major League Baseball team, the Minnesota Twins, and the hijinks which inevitably ensue. Not a great movie, but certainly better than some of the other kids' sports movies of the era, such as Rookie of the Year. The Jihad card game was very quickly rebranded as Vampire the Eternal Struggle, and is based on the classic White Wolf Vampire the Masquerade role-playing game. The name was as controversial as you can imagine it was. Well, if you remember, we mentioned it and moved swiftly on, didn't we? <laughs> And was quickly changed, but I do vividly remember Wizard hyping Jihad as the next magic. Never really took off, but it was a fun game in its own right. Normal Man was an extremely funny comic by Jim Valentino about a regular guy, Norm, who was rocketed from his home planet because his father thought it was going to explode. It didn't. And landed on a planet of superheroes, Leverham. Hence he is dubbed Normal Man. He hangs out with cat in everything, but the power for every plot twist. And each issue is a spoof of a different classic comic genre. One did science fiction, one did horror, one did romance, etc. Very funny series which has been collected into an oversized phone book with everything in one volume. Can't wait for the conclusion of Night's End. Luke. P.S. Please sing more. (laughs) 
Chili, you just made me with tears come to my eyes. <laughs> oh, I'm made up now. Somebody has finally emailed in and said, please sing more. <laughs> anyway, so we can laugh at you. Oh, yeah, probably. <laughs> so we, on his headphones, we can turn the volume down. <laughs> Oh, thank you, Luke. You do make me laugh. PPS, just last week I saw an Iron Maiden concert up in Charlotte and I wanted to say thank you to the United Kingdom in general for making that possible. If you could please pass this message along to the Queen and the Prime Minister, I'd appreciate it. Thanks. Uh, well, I'm not passing it on to the Prime Minister because he's nothing to which do one? with Iron Maiden. I will, yeah, which would the deputy one or the Prime Minister? Um, but I will certainly pass it along to the Queen the next time we pop round for tea. Oh, yeah. I will say thank you for Iron Maiden and she will say what was instrumental <laughs> Philip what put the corgis in creating the heavy metal group that was Iron Maiden but I advise them to get rid of the first singer and replace him with that nice Bruce Dickinson fellow he's much better isn't he Philip Philip clean up the corgis mess and I, I guarantee that's how the conversation will go okay and Luke Giaconetti sends us in another email for the episode we only put up today that's it is. That's that's excellent commitment, and I approve wholeheartedly. Night's End finale. In fact, I was thinking about this the other day, Luke. Luke has been a loyal listener since the very beginning. Are we going to promote him? No, 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 no. We well, we, we promote his. We promote Earth's destructive directive whenever we, we get the chance. Can we send him a gold sticker? We could send him a gold sticker for being a, a, a loyal listener. As I was saying, he's been a loyal listener since we started. He's always been enthusiastic and. Um, What's the word I'm looking for? Encouraging. Yeah. Encouraging in his emails, and we appreciate him wholeheartedly. Encouraging in the wrong ways, you are not singing. Yes, well, there is that. <laughs> but he, as I say, he has been with us from the beginning. So, as a, a little shout-out to Luke, what I was thinking we could do in an upcoming show. All right. Very recently, my friend Tor. Tor? Tor Rent, our buddy. Ah, you, you know him. Yeah, yeah. He's a good mate. Lives down the road. <laughs> he came around our house with a stack of the Marvel Comics G.I. Joe series. Just right. dropped him on my laptop. Yeah. Said, here you go, have him. And I was like, cheers, mate. For free. For free, take them. <laughs> so I did. And I was thinking, what we should do for Luke is right. we should do an issue of G.I. Joe. Just one. Yeah, well, we don't want to do a story arc, because I don't feel that I know enough about it to really comment. And we don't want to do a multiple episode arc about it. But I felt the least we could do for Luke was do an issue of G.I. Joe. So I think we've got the entire Marvel run Mm-hmm. of G.I. Joe I think it's about 150 odd issues or something so if Luke wants to recommend us a, a good issue from that run and I'll see if we've got it we will cover that in a future show just for you okay you know, are you down with that alright because right, that trailer that opening credit sequence that G.I. Joe opening credit sequence was pretty damn good <laughs> wasn't it I greatly enjoyed that uh, anyway Luke's next email which is entitled Night's End Finale bye whip granite whip it's the universal greeting is that interlock? Um, I don't know. Yeah, okay. This is Night's End. The only Night's End, my friend. With apologies to Jim Morrison. Oh, don't apologise to Jim Morrison. In Detective 677, the police open fire on Az Bats. Are they in the casino when they open fire on him? Let me check that, because I still have the issues here, because I've not put them away yet, because you're, you're by not, and large... You're not a fan of the doors, Dad. I'm a lazy bugger. Why? You mean you said don't apologise to Jim Morrison? I don't mind the doors. At all. I quite like the doors. Right, no. They, the police show up at the casino on page 18. They point their guns at him and open fire on him as he leaps out of the window of the casino and lands on the dock. So all the civilians have been um, excavated, not excavated, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean, lost the word there, by the time they open fire. 
so they don't open fire on him actually in the casino it's as he's leaping out of the window so Luke's email continues sheesh I know Gotham City's a pretty skeevy place but that's a bit extreme even for the GCPD for some reason the gambler refuses to move to leave reminds me of the two women who refused to leave the restaurant in the original Batman the movie but the 60s Adam West one I think. Michael's line of it's all, Danny Elfman, reminds me of the old Mystery Science Theatre 3000 joke. Danny Elfman, Danny Elfman, this bit sounds like Danny Elfman. That makes more sense if you hear the music, but still. Danny Elfman, Danny Elfman, this bit sounds like Danny Elfman. <laughs> uh, don't get me started on child car seats. I'd sooner switch cars with my wife than try and move the car seats to my car. I hated car seats. So you said... <laughs> There's something really strange to me that Night's End's finale is in Legends of the Dark Knight. I mean, it really should be in either Detective or Batman, as far as I'm concerned. But I guess you sort of go with the flow with these big event books. As for the issue itself, I do like that the final confrontation between Batman and Asbats is given a whole issue showcase. I much appreciated Bruce not just duking it out with Asbats, but instead outsmarting him. Although Asbats didn't figure out what Bruce had planned for him, I don't know. I also liked how Bruce and Asbats were fighting in the manor, like Bane and Bruce did all those months ago in Batman 497. A nice callback. It is that. That was a lovely little bit of symbolism that went completely over our head. It did, yeah. Didn't it? Well, point well spotted, Luke. That's two issues of G.I. Joe you just earned yourself. Yes. Yeah, we'll do an issue each. Yeah. <laughs> I have to ask, though, isn't letting Jean-Paul go the same thing as what fans were complaining about before Nightfall? That Bruce didn't deal with his enemies and contributed to the revolving door in Gotham City. Now, admittedly, Jean-Paul is not the same class as people like the Scarecrow and, Sk- and the Joker, but he still let a violent, borderline, psychopathic murderer just wander the streets of Gotham. Is this really a smart move by Bruce? Shouldn't he have at least kept an eye on him? Uh, my thinking is he does keep an eye on him mm. but I don't know see well we had problems with that ending full stop didn't we I did read uh, Contagion and they do talk to each other yes they do and they do talk in Contagion I think they do in No Man's Land as well mm. I can't remember as for ads I wanted to mention that the last temptation of Alice Cooper comic by Neil Gaiman is an adaptation of the sorts of the Alice Cooper album of the same name Alice Cooper as a comic book character is perfect to me the character is essentially a comic book supervillain in the first place in fact he started an issue of Marvel Premiere back in the day as well I just saw Cooper last week as the opening act to Iron Maiden I love Alice Cooper he's such a great bloke you know when you see him being interviewed yeah. he's such a stand-up fella. Okay. I'm a big fan of Alice Cooper. Good call again on the Terminator music. I'm glad you caught that because I did, I did bookend them. Yeah. And I did that deliberately. There's a bit of music from the Terminator under the Punisher Batman right. crossover we covered in part one of Night's End. And then the Punisher Batman team-up we covered in the... I did a different Terminator music. Okay. So I'm glad you caught up on that. It's all cyclical. Mm. Unfortunately for Bane, he'd served his literary purpose, he broke the bat, and accomplished his in-character goal. He came to Gotham City, defeated Batman and ruled the night. So he could have just written off into the sunset back to South America after his defeat. Jeff Johns teased a new direction for him in Infinite Crisis. In the big fight at the end, he makes the statement that, I am Bane, I break people. But in, that was very Arnold Schwarzenegger. I was like, Screw you, Corgan! I am not being Mr. Freeze anymore. <laughs> well, that idea was dropped rather quickly after his appearances in Checkmate. I'm a fan, but really only of his initial appearance. I like the bit in the novel that Bane is not expected to recover from the nerve damage much better. Bane would have a great cameo appearance in an early episode of Batman Beyond, where the young Batman finds as a burnt-out husk of a man kept alive by a respirator years after, after years of using venom. Creepy. Uh, yeah, well, I've said this before, and I think it's the same with Doomsday, that... I think in both cases the characters should have been retired. Because after... They, they were created for that storyline, they so did what they were supposed to do in that storyline. Whenever they've used them after that, it's kind of diluted them. Mm. doesn't matter how good the story is, 
it's kind of, the whole point of Doomsday was he shows up and beats Superman yep. because they wanted somebody that had never done it before it seemed a bit odd that Lex Luthor's 154th attempt at killing Superman would work when his 153 previous attempts didn't so I bought Doomsday for that purpose the minute you bring him back you're diluting that he killed Superman and it's the same with Bane the minute you bring him back you're diluting that he did this to Batman he should have been. He did that original storyline, and he's gone. Luke's right. How the novel handed him was much better. The only other time Bane has ever been used in any way well is in the Over the Edge episode of the TV show, the '90s animated yeah. TV show. It's the only other time Bane's been used anything close to good. In order of the closing of the Nightfall, Night's Quest, Night's End coverage, I want to simply reference some lyrics from the song King Nothing by Metallica. Careful what you wish, careful what you say, careful what you wish you may regret it. Careful what you wish you just might get it. We may even have that song. Okay. We'll have a loop and we may put that in. That's Keep it up, cool. dudes, and looking forward to the new frontier, prodigal, troika, and whatever else is coming down the pike, Luke. You can find it um, on the album Prima Donnas. Go. Oh, <laughs> um, I don't know if we're going to end up getting to new frontier tonight. We're now, um, God, 70 minutes into the episode. So we'll take a break there and we'll play Charlie Niemeyer's promo. Okay. And we'll be back. In the decade of the 1970s and 80s, not even the great city of Metropolis could be spared the ravages of an energy crisis supercriminal attacks, or disco. The job of protecting the city fell to Superman, whose battle for truth, justice, and the American way made him a symbol of hope for the city of Metropolis. Charlie Niemeyer In association with the Superman Podcast Network presents... Superman in the Bronze Age. Superman in the Bronze Age is a bi-weekly podcast highlighting the Bronze Age adventures of the Man of Steel in various comic titles. Follow along at www.supermanandthebronzeage.com. And we're back. Um, let's let me uncase my new frontier from its slipcase because it is mighty and we love it. Mm. And find where we were up to when we left off. If Michael can stop yawning, I've stopped yawning. Which was chapter eight. New frontier, picking up exactly where we left off last week in my lovely, lovely, lovely absolute. Chapter 8, Government Issues. Central City, 1958. Responding to a call that Gorilla Grodd is back, the Flash narrowly avoids being captured by King Faraday. Coast City, 1959. Carol Ferris and Hal Jordan are at the Motorama Car Show, where they meet up with Ace Morgan and the newest member of the Challengers of the Unknown, June Robbins. In Gotham City HQ, John Johns and his guys as police detective John Jones now has a wall of weird devoted to paranormal activities and superherodom, including the masked John Henry, the southern vigilante still causing problems for the clan. Whilst monitoring the wall, Harry Leiter is brought in for questioning and his talk of little green men bring him to John's attention. 
later tells Han about Ferris aircraft and the project to head to Mars and the belief that Martians are here on Earth. King Faraday arrives and takes Lighter into custody, but as he leaves, Jahan shakes his hand, absorbing all of his knowledge. It's true, a startled Jahan realises. They're building a rocket to Mars. Operation Flying Cloud Flag scrubs Gordon from the mission for showboating after a simulation flight goes awry. Carol fights Hal's corner, but Flag is unrepentant. Jordan is grounded. In Tennessee, the clan hunt John Henry, who is wounded. He seeks refuge in a barn where he is discovered by a sweet, blonde-haired little girl who immediately turns him into the clan. At Paradise Island, Wonder Woman relaxes with her people when Superman arrives to ask, Why did you resign? Wonder Woman replies that Nixon made it clear after she was given her medal that her political ideals were no longer welcome. She tells Superman America is an ideal, not an administration, and the current administration is not the America she fought for. In Gotham City, following the death of John Henry, John Johns worries about a world that will not accept a man due to the colour of his skin, and is more convinced than ever that the world will never accept him. When the Flash commandeers the TV networks to announce his retirement following the attack by Faraday, John decides it's time to return home. He arranges a meet with the Batman and tells him all he knows and where he can access his research. The Batman accesses the data and learns of the mysterious island and that the paranoia is linked to the worship of an entity called the Centre. He calls somebody and arranges a meet for next Tuesday. Ooh, it's all heating up. Um, the opening pages... Once again, proves that Cook draws one of the best Flash interpretations ever. It seems to me that Francis Manipul and Brian Buccoletto owe an awful lot to Darwin Cook. He, he draws a very scary gorilla grub, though. Who? Them. Cook. He, he draws looks a- like a scary Chinese hunchback. He does, and I, I like his his mustache. Yeah. yeah, which is quite cool. Uh, this sequence is great, the opening two pages, highlighting Faraday's desire to own superheroes for his own ends. But the Flash actually escaping from the net that Faraday covers him in is a huge fist in the air moment. I love the standard beat cops reaction as well, that the Flash is on our team. I thought they were after the monkey, mm. which was a lovely little touch. Um, I like how on the portrait of uh, Iris, it says, don't be late. Reference into how he's always late. Oh yeah, which was a nice little Barry Allen character beat, wasn't it? Yeah. That he was the fastest man alive, but he was always late. Um, the art at the Motorama on pages 216 through 217 is a word I am going to overuse in our new Frontier coverage, but just simply gorgeous. Uh, it's said that every car has a face, and Cook takes this literally, giving all the cars that classic 50s futuristic retro look. They all look like aeroplanes on wheels. Yeah, old sleek lines and fins mm. with glo- growling grills and threatening headlights. Apparently these were all real cars of the era, he says in the back, that he did an awful lot of research on the different kinds of cars yeah. that were available. Probably a lot more than he needed to. Probably. Don't they all look like the 60s Batmobile? Yeah. Don't they all look like that car that they used for that, which was a Plymouth Futura, was yeah. it? I think. Well, these cars look really good. Yeah. And the only problem with cars now is that they've lost yeah. personality and they just become these boxes on wheels with big asses instead of boots. Yeah, well, it's it's the same. The Jag in the 60s and the little Mini Coopers and certainly the American muscle cars, which you know I'm quite the fan of, mm. are all just so much better looking than cars are today. And I know emissions and green and all that gubbins and I'm fine with it, but 
Can't you make green cars that look cool? The cars now are more efficiency over looking good. Yeah. They have lost a lot of personality. Yeah, they've lost the cool, Mm. basically, haven't they? Which is a real shame. I understand why. You don't have to get on my back about global warming and all that gubbins, but, you know, I like cars that look cool as well. Uh, The DA of Gotham, according to page 223, is a two-faced SOB. Did you notice that? I did, yeah. Which I thought was a lovely little touch. There's graffiti on the wall in the prison. The sequence in the Gotham City Police Department is, again, simply beautiful. Cook fills these panels with period details. The men all chomp on cigars and wear pork pie hats and rumpled suits. The in-and-out trays overflow with past cases. There are men in cuffs with black eyes and women in elegant dresses awaiting questioning. And into all of this walk Faraday and his men and women in black. A stark contrast to the realistic surroundings. Faraday's people are well-dressed and elegant-looking compared to the schlubs that populate the Gotham City Police Department. The ties are all buttoned up, unlike the detectives who all have their top buttons undone and the skinny ties loose. The paranoia of the situation is amped up wonderfully in the panel on page 224, where John realises that Lighter isn't delusional, but is in fact telling the truth. The close-up of his eye widening as Faraday and Commissioner Gordon walk off is wonderfully executed. And I love the posters with life on Mars and yeah. all that stuff written in the background. Uh, the simulation on page 225, 226 evokes the opening of Star Trek 2 and the Kobayashi Maru test of that movie. But the art feels very much like an old dander strip with square-jawed heroes and clean, elegant spaceship. I wish we could have an entire series like this, but I've thought that about a lot of the sequences in this story. It's very lost in space as well, isn't it? Well, it looks like the training to play asteroids. Yeah, that as well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, the visual representation of um, yeah. the data is very asteroids. Yeah, that's pretty, that is really good. <laughs> Do you know I hadn't twigged that, despite asteroids being one of my favourite games? Yeah, is Jetpack Simulation going to be... Um, Jet, yeah, set, will be it? Pong. <laughs> <laughs> oh, very good. Um, have I mentioned I love the Art Deco design of Ferris Hur? Because I do. It's no more apparent on pages 227, 228 where Hal is fired by flag. We hear the entire conversation, but the camera stays on Hal, vacillating between close-ups and long shots to establish his isolation. The flag Jordan animosity has been bubbling for a while, but here we finally see its culmination as flag axes him from the programme. It's especially poignant. I can never say poignant. poignant. But, yes, thank you very much. And it's also at deco, not at deco. Well, if you've just come in here to slag me off... Alright, fair enough. Um, Again, we will find out the motivation behind this later on. Uh, The John Henry material is easily the most emotionally affecting in the book this far. Whilst John's story is touching for different reasons, John Henry is fighting a fight that hits far close to home and Cook manipulates the scene where the little girl turns John Henry in for all it's worth. Personally, I'm not someone who complains when stories manipulate me emotionally because that's a story's job Mm -hmm. to manipulate you emotionally. Uh, And Cook masterfully plays this scene. We see John Henry take off his mask to reveal his face and then we get a single panel of the girl with beautiful wide blue eyes and cascading long blonde hair and we think she's going to help him. When she doesn't, and uses a racial epithet to turn him in. It's powerfully written stuff. This is comics as an art form. 
at its very best. There's no moralising, there's no sentimentality, it's just powerful storytelling. It's also wonderfully set up in the narration boxes, the famous folk song, The Ballad of John Henry, in which Cook admits that he took some liberties with to better service the story. doesn't matter. The fact that the passages quoted imply John Henry knows this is the end only emphasises our desire as a reader for it not to be so, only to have our hopes crushed. I'd wish that comics could be this good all of the time, but then the cream wouldn't rise to the top when it's poured, if they were. Well, the, it is. The ending is quite powerful. And the, the way it ended as well is what gave it its power. Mm. So there's, there's other things like To Kill a Mockingbird and all that, which yeah. deals with racism, which had the powerful moments, yeah, but using this as a young girl who seems innocent, yeah. it's that extra powerful. Yeah. And it's especially powerful as well, because she looks like your sister. Mm. She's got the cute little face and the tiny little nose and the blue eyes and the long blonde hair. That could be your sister. Then it's the disbelief that someone who looks that innocent ultimately kills him. Yeah, ultimately leads to his death. It's it's a fantastically executed scene. But your sister wouldn't do this. Because there's a girl at school... When we go to your report evenings... My report evenings? Not yours, your, your sister's report evenings. Okay. We're always told that she's the one who, whenever there's a new person in class, she's the one who always goes to them. Okay. and offers to help them and sits with them and be friends with them okay. but only because she wants the attention well probably but there is this one girl that she doesn't get on with Okay. and we were watching something not long ago I can't remember what it was right. and um, it was ER and there was a girl okay. outside crying that Abby the character of Abby Lockhart doesn't get on with and Abby just walks past her and ignores her and then stops and does that magnum head roll and turns around and goes back to ask her what the problem is and your sister said why has she done that and your mum said, well, what would you do if such and such a body, this girl from school, mm-hmm. was crying? Would you just ignore her? And Anya went, no. Liar. And I went, no, I don't think that she was. I was so proud of her then. That even when it's with somebody she, she's not fond of, she would go to them and ask them, do you need help? Still with reluctance. But she would do it, yeah. is the point. There's that episode of Star Trek where let me help become the three most important words in the universe. Okay. And I know Star Trek's this painfully optimistic vision of the future. But it would be nice if we would actually get there one day. Mm. I don't think we will. No. Mankind's too much of a screw-up. But that's just me, and that's a conversation for a different episode. Um, I'd rather have an iEnterprise than an iPod, though. Would you? Yeah. <laughs> an Enterprise that looks like an Apple show. <laughs> uh, there's a wonderful sequence that follows this one, featuring real-life reporter Edward R. Morrow, again, Cook blurring the lines between fantasy and reality, giving a news report on the life and death of John Henry, the real name John Wilson. We know a John Wilson, although this is spelled differently. Hiya, John. Uh, it's a little bit too on the nose for me, compared to the subtlety of the previous sequence, but... Given that it is evoking the standard news reports of the, the time, the effects do mirror such a reading. So it does a good job of offering up the hypocrisy of the time. And the different characters' reactions, and especially highlights John, John's reaction, the character who's got the most in common with John Henry. Henry's betrayal breaks John's heart, and this leads to his decision to quit Earth and try and return home. Um, Edward R. Morrow, as I pointed out, is a real journalist Mm. and had a fantastic career as a news journalist from World War II, where he was stationed in London and gave remarkable reports on the Blitz to his real-life attack on Joe McCarthy that helped bring the senator down. He's worth Googling if you want to know more about the golden age of TV journalism. Page 241, 
Crew 242 are not in the miniseries. So we don't get to see uh, Dr. Seuss kill we don't himself. Get, we don't get to see his Dr. Seuss analogue shoot himself in the brain, no. Mm. Although we don't actually get to see that nah. in the strip. But the so. Grinch does. Yes, the, the Grinch analogue does. Um, we've mentioned this before, Cook draws the curviest Wonder Woman since Linda Carter. Mm-hmm. Apart from the eye candy of Paradise Island, we see here Superman having his eyes open to something he's long turned a blind eye to. Likewise, the retirement of the Flash on the next page starts to send the story in an intriguing direction, as John's disillusionment with the human race leads him to abandon his adopted homeworld, and the Batman gets closer to the truth. To be honest with this, I I I know it will change later, but I'm not all that fond of Adam Strange being in Arkham. Well, it is one of those things, Adam Strange's story... Let's be honest, <laughs> well, if somebody told you that story in a, with a straight face in real life, you'd think they were a bit batty, wouldn't you? But when I'm surrounded by people who can fly and are from a doom planet, Krypton, and I have Amazonians and yes. Atlanteans and yes. fascist men alive. Well, this is always the problem with the DC Universe. We've mentioned this before, isn't it? That somebody will go, I don't believe in vampires. <laughs> okay, you believe in everything else. But vampires is where Dr. your... Dr. Michael Morbius, nice yeah, to meet you. Yeah, is where your, your breaking point snaps, yeah. is it? Okay, fair enough. This was less of a story, to be honest with you, or even a chapter of a story, but lots of little vignettes. Numerous loose ends are tied up, and in doing so lead to more loose ends that start spinning the story in a different direction. There's definitely a hint that Superman will be making some hard choices soon, and Jordan's canning, the Flash retiring and on deciding to leave for good, are excellent story beats preparing to spin the events within on its axis and into a new direction for the end of the series. There's a feeling that Coop, like a masterful chess player, is movies and his characters all into place for the final few issues. What did you think? I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. There's a problem well, with this. This is the part where it's starting to get very... Dense. No, well, no, the first three are fairly optimistic, and then you get to halfway through and then things start looking bad. Yeah, things start looking bleak in the I'm midsection. pretty sure you just spilled on your... <laughs> <laughs> I just spilled water on my absolute. Well, at least it's water and it's mopped clean off. Oh, well, it's not like drawing on it, is it? Not really. No, not like you drew in my Invincible Hardcover Volume 1. That was Anya. Oh, okay. I can prove that because I left it on the table because I was reading it before school. Fair enough. Okay. Chapter 9, The Flying Cloud, Ferris Aircraft. The Flying Cloud readies for takeoff with its brave crew, engineer and science officer Jess Bright, pilot and team leader Colonel Rick Flagg, and co-pilot and medical officer Karen Grace. Hal Jordan is in mission control where all systems are green across the board. With the go for launch, Ons is ready to return home sneaking aboard the vessel but is spotted by Faraday on the monitors. John easily overpowers Faraday but if John leaps aboard the shuttle's hull Faraday will be killed by the rockets. John hesitates but saves Faraday's life. The flying cloud blasts off. 48 hours later at Nellis Air Force Base Faraday holds John captive. He's interviewing him when they receive word that Jess Bright has cracked up and crippled the flying cloud. Flag regained control and navigated to the edge of the atmosphere, but they are out of fuel and in a deteriorating orbit. Believing he's going to die, Flag confesses to Hal that he scrubbed him from the mission because he knew Martin Jordan in World War II. He scrubbed Hal to save his life. The conversation is interrupted from Challenger Mountain, where Ace Morgan and the Challengers of the Unknown are launching a rescue. Faraday orders them to stand down. When the Challengers undergo atmospheric interference and launch anyway, Faraday calls in Superman. Faraday tells Superman that the cloud has three armed payloads, viral, a nerve agent and a hydrogen bomb. If the challengers rescue the cloud, that'll be all she wrote. 
The challengers move in, executing a during, some would say insane, maneuver that almost works, but before the inevitable explosion, Superman swoops in to save the challengers. He's too late for Karen and Flag, who activate the self-destruct together to prevent the flying cloud from hitting the Earth. In Arkham Asylum, Adam Strange has been held as an inmate due to his belief that he spends half his life on another planet, which he travels to on a beam of light. Other than his paranoid delusions, he's perfectly rational, but his belief of a coming force destined to destroy mankind is also affecting others. Following Rick Flagg and Karen Grace's death, Faraday orders a 21-gun salute and a burial at Arlington. Following this, Hal witnesses something in the simulator room at Ferris Ur and disappears in a puff of purest green. These synopsises are getting denser as well, aren't they? Uh, the journey of the flying cloud is the culmination of one of the main plot points of the series so far, along with Faraday's paranoia regarding Martian invasion, and Cook marries them together for a successful payoff. Faraday spotting John on the monitor was a lovely little touch, as was John hesitating before saving Faraday's life. John knows he's sacrificing his way home, but can't bring himself to allow a man to be killed by his own inactions. Cook is playing with the popular science fiction idea of which one is the monster. I like Magnus's cameo. Yeah. Even though the Metal Men don't appear until briefly in the epilogue. Well, there's tons of little cameos like that in it. Some of them, which I, I freely admit I probably didn't get. Yeah. You probably got more of them than I did. Uh, page 257, the Adam Strange interlude, and 258, a little bit of character business with Jess Bright are not in the miniseries. Why is Adam in an asylum for the criminally insane? Because oh. he's not a criminal. He's also not insane, but we'll yeah. get to that later. There's a lot of things with Arkham, though, where writers don't seem to understand that it's an asylum when you throw someone like Catwoman and Penguin in there. Yeah, there's always this Catwoman and Penguin should never be in Arkham. Blackgate, yeah. Yes, but not Arkham. Although maybe this Arkham Asylum isn't for the criminally insane. It does just say Arkham Asylum. But it's still an asylum. Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah you're right. Yeah, okay. Good point. Fair play. Uh, page 260 is a touching little character beat with John. Uh, the realisation that Faraday believes he's in the right and one day his kind won't be needed fills John with hope. Such a gorgeous sentiment that no man believes he's a villain that throws Faraday's actions throughout the book into a new light, especially when you consider that Faraday is actually right. Mm. There are Martians living amongst us. That he's wrong about the motivation yeah. is simply down to his narrow worldview. But he's not wrong. No. He's absolutely correct in his assertion and, and his belief in what he's doing. So that must be quite comforting to him as well, yeah. that he was right. Page 261 is an absolutely chilling panel of Jess, who's just been flung into outer space, just floating away. Um, there's a look of real terror on his face there, isn't there? Yeah. It's really well done. Um, the flying clouds in the background... Is it disintegrating in the atmosphere or because of something Jess did? And the moon both. is in the background, which is lovely. Mm. I thought uh, this entire sequence was really good. Page 62, and here Flag's motivations are flown, thrown into stark relief. Flag knew Hal's father, and Martin Jordan's tales of his son about why he fought actually got through to Flag's stone cold heart, and that's why he scrubs Hal from the mission. Because he suspects it may be a one-way mission. Yeah. And he didn't want Hal dying. Which I thought was just lovely. Mm -hmm. We already know, don't we? Yeah. That um, Flag was one of those bastards with a heart of gold. As opposed to a bastard with a heart of stone. Like Faraday has been so far. Yeah. So it wasn't a surprise that Flag had a heart. 
but it was it was wonderfully executed. Really, really good. Um, what am I up to? Page 264. When Faraday calls in Superman, Superman's in Tokyo Bay fighting a giant robot. Yep. Which is just an awesome well. couple of panels. Um, especially, before you carry on, the top panel of page 266 where Superman gets his head stood on. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, how do you know that we're in Japan? Well, okay, there's the big neon signs in Japanese, which yeah. give away. But no, the correct answer is the giant robot. Yeah. Um, Superman fighting giant robots. There is no wrong, though. No. Superman fight gi- fighting giant robots is always cool. So, have you noticed that whenever a superhero's in Japan, it's always to fight a, a giant, giant robot? Something. What's wrong with that? I think that's perfectly acceptable. And is it not a bit of an overreaction to have three warheads in case of in case of a Martian threat? They have reason to believe that there's at least one Martian hiding in them, but they didn't have they didn't have conclusive evidence to support the warheads before launch. Well, isn't this why this is a covert mission? Suppose this is something that would never go through Congress, presumably. Although, what if you get to Mars and the Martians come out and they all greet you with sandwiches and, <laughs> and a cup of tea? Yeah, Would you like some cucumber sandwiches, isn't it? And, all, and, then, and then they say, oh, oh dear, you have warheads. And then they decide to turn around and become a threat. That was your fault, Yeah, then. Yeah, well, there is that. That's a good point as well, Paul. Um, page 274 is Superman saving the challengers, Rocky and Red, at the last minute. And again, another real punch in the air moment. Especially the full-page splash. Mm. of him whirring away the challenges are burning and this will carry on Red will still be suffering from burns in the next chapter Yeah, but it's a great panel this is a fantastic issue there's a very definite feeling of endings here as Flag and Grace both by the farm with even Superman unable to save them in time but they build up to the event and the scenes of Superman swooping in to save the challenges is just phenomenally handled by Cook. Michael's just mentioned page 273 which is just three panels of Grace and Flag hitting the button I like Colin really it's like one yeah, big long it's a double page spread page. essentially where Flag's life flashes before his eyes well it's the life he wants but the life he would have liked to have where he marries Grace and they grow old together mm-hmm. but the final scene of them leaning in to kiss each other and taking the, the helmets off because they're going to die anywhere and pressing the button together and the artwork's just black and white it's it's phenomenal, mm. isn't it? It's really good. The tension, the artwork, the deft character touches, the cameos, the story reveals, everything about this chapter just works. We even get to see a different side to Faraday. And then the cliffhanger ending of what has happened to Hal Jordan. Probably the biggest tease of the story so far. It's simply brilliant. Um, because we're not reading the miniseries, was that the actual end of an issue where Hal just disappears? I'm assuming so, yeah. I think that was an end of a cha- of not a chapter Sorry, of an actual issue tease to later on as well what? with um, the prototype model of- yeah there, yeah, yeah um, Carol's got a model in her room of the prototype that Hal will steal later on in the issue it's a nice bit of foreshadow um, chapter 10 SOS Green Lantern on Interstate 66 Hal Jordan is bequeathed a ring and a lantern by a dying alien 
Hal thinks that's as batty as it sounds. He gives the fallen alien a warrior's burial and goes off over what he said. The ring needs recharging in the battery every solar cycle. It is impotent in the face of yellow, and Hal has been chosen to be the ring bearer due to his courage and convictions. Hal does a few super feats and learns the ring's capabilities and limitations before deciding to bury the evidence. He tries to call Challenger Mountain to explain what has happened, but can't find the words, which is fortunate, as Lois Lane is there reporting on the base. Red and Ace are recovering from their last mission, whilst Jimmy and Lois are given the grand tour by June, and Professor Haley is examining DNA samples from strange creatures that have been appearing around the Pacific and Atlantic coasts. Suddenly, the National Security Code clacks and rings. Another dinosaur has been seen at Cape Canaveral. The challengers, along with Lois and Jimmy, go for launch. Uh, again, the opening pages of this issue are awesome. The challengers are recovering from their experience last issue, when Hal and the Ring stuff is just a schnizzle. Or I thought it was. Mm. Uh, the desert landscapes where Abin Sur crashes are beautifully rendered with the vast and gorgeous American landscapes disappearing into the distance on page 281. Followed by Hal experimenting with the ring on page 290, trying to go into outer space. The real kicker is the two-page spread on page 289 through 290, where Hal learns he can not only fly but at incredible speeds. The kind of sheer joy at the power of the ring was something the Green Lantern movie tried to capture, but did only sporadically. Handled wonderfully here in a mere handful of pages. If I have a complaint, it's that the cook makes the costume really look like an ill-fitting pair of pyjamas than an actual uniform. Mm. But haven't you always complained about the Green Lantern uniform because each member seems to have a different one? Yeah, isn't the whole point of a uniform is it's a uniform? Yeah. Just having the Green Lantern logo on it, don't make it a uniform, that just makes it a t-shirt. Yeah. Um, there's a nod to Kirby on page 279. Is there? Where Rocky says that the Challenger's home was designed by a madman named Kurtzberg. Oh, right, Kirby's real name. Which was Kirby's birth name and yeah, he created the Challengers. Yes. Well, there's an awful lot of Kirbyisms in this, isn't there? Yeah. Uh, page 292 is another one of those lovely little human touches that Cook sprinkles throughout the story. Hal's raising a huge chunk of real estate to bury the spaceship when he's startled by a rattlesnake and drops the lot, which I thought was wonderful. Um, Michael's just mentioned Challenger HQ, but it's, a, again, a wonderful retro 50s futuristic hybrid that Cook has been designing so well in this series. Lois looks particularly fetching here with shorter hair and a headband. So she's rocking the Gwen Stacy. Mm. At this and there's point. another nod there with the yeah. American. There's an issue of Scientific American, American with uh, Ray Palmer on the cover. Which Adam Palmer, Adam Strange was reading. Yeah, which Adam Strange was reading, and we'll also pay into the finale mm-hmm. when we get there. Uh, this was a very short chapter, but lovely to look at. Chapter 11 is Toward the Centre, which is another short one. Clark Kent receives a film with children's author Ted Smeasel's last work on it. Using his supervision, he examines the find. The story is called The King of Monster Isle and reveals how an alien being fell to Earth many millennia ago. It grew and nurtured at the centre, but with the advent of man decided to leave or, if necessary, cleanse the planet so the inhabitants could not learn of the centre from where he will grow. Clark pauses and ponders. In Gotham City, Superman meets Batman and his new protégé, Robin. Of course, Batman sent the film to Clark, and they discuss its implications. Whatever Cecil was working on, it is deeply uncharacteristic, and possibly imminent. On Paradise Island, the skies turn dark. At Nellis Air Force Base, Faraday and John enjoy a game of chess. John explains that the greatest menace they have ever faced is here, now. Is America, is King Faraday, 
ready for that. At Cape Canaveral, the challengers arrive to witness a huge prehistoric creature and a buzzing noise that just won't stop. The challengers are ordered to stand down. Bishop Six will handle it. Bishop Six is Superman, handling it, as he does, but although he brings the creature down, the buzzing continues. Far below the Atlantic, the King of the Seas explores what he long believed was a furry tail, the center. He can feel what it wants, the stars. But to achieve that goal, it must cleanse the surface. Um, for some reason, I really like panel two of page 296. Clark Kent's just lounging back. His glasses are on the top of his head, examining a roll of film with his supervision. It's just a lovely little image of Superman, but as usual with Cook, it's the surroundings that give it its reality. Clark's hat is hanging from the desk light. There's a coffee mug and a sandwich, and the lighting is really good, evoking a feeling of dusk. Uh, Page 296 through 299 are all depicted as the film strip. And we see exactly what Clark sees. It's a lovely little visual touch. It's even better in that you could string them all together mm. if you wanted to cut your comic up as one long strip, which I thought was really nice. How have they turned, well, how's Batman turned a book into a film reel? I presume somebody's filmed the book. But these are the pages. Yeah, it's a roll of films. He not took pictures of them. Because remember, you're too young to remember rolls of film. I know what a roll of film is. Right. But if you take sequential pictures on a roll of film and lift it up and look at it, that's what it would look like. Right, okay. So it's possible Batman's not sent him the original material. Would he not be seeing this all the negatives then? Well, maybe he is. Maybe that's why he's using his extra vision. Okay. I mean, I'll give him an artistic license mm. for this so that we get to see it properly. Or maybe Superman's vision works in such a way that he can, in, he can reinterpret the negative into a positive. Maybe. So he can use his vision to see it properly. And how, uh, how can he do that? Because he's from Krypton. Because he's from Krypton. Which is an excellent excuse, mm-hmm. I think. Um, Superman heads to Gotham City. There's a wonderful sequence of him flying. Uh, especially panel 2 of page 300, where he smiles. Mm. Because he can hear the conversation before he gets there. And Robin calls him the coolest. Which I thought was lovely. Even Superman's not immune to a bit of ego massage. Mm. Um, then we get an absolutely gorgeous splash page on 301 of Batman and Robin meeting Superman. Cook does a number of subtle things to the costumes to make them more grounded in reality in a way that doesn't make them look like pyjamas like he did with the Green Lantern. He makes Robin's pixie boots look like proper boots with weight and he makes the trunks look more like shorts. In every other respect, though, this is Burt Ward's outfit. Batman is all wrapped in a cloak, but again the boots are given some heft, and the mask isn't as severe as in Batman's previous appearance in the story. The bat signal is shining, which is always cool. But doesn't this imply that Batman's ignoring the bat signal to come and have a chat with Superman? Well, it looks like the bat signal's coming from the Batman. Oh, it is! You're absolutely right. right. Yeah, sorry, I, I completely missed that. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Batman is shining the bat signal from the Batmobile to let Superman know where they are. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Well done. So that's not wrong. Perfect. Uh, Superman's still got his red S with the black background and the yellow trim. And the Batmobile is still the classic roadster with the bat hook. Bat hook? Bat hood. Uh, pages 302 and 303 are actually some of my favourites in the story so far. Here... If you remember last week, we mentioned that I had a problem with some of the things that Superman was doing. Yeah. But having read the whole story, it casts all that in a new light. 
we find out on these two pages that Superman's not a puppet of whatever administration is in power, but is actively working from within to change the system. And he's actually doing so with the full cooperation and assistance of the Batman. They both arrange for the Batman to defeat Superman earlier on so that he could continue to operate and have worked in tandem ever since. An absolutely glorious an eminently logical chain of events that tosses the Dark Knight Returns characterization of Superman out the window, which I'm more than happy to do. Yeah. Uh, I also like Robin's joie de vivre, uh, probably butchering that pronunciation, <laughs> as the implication that Batman may have been a little bit too scurry, so he's toned down a bit. Yeah. I like that an awful lot. I, I like how Superman and Batman are friends as mm-hmm. Clark and Bruce. Yeah. And uh, I like how Robin just dances around. Yeah, he just dances around doing acrobatics, doesn't he, in the background. Yeah, it's really, really, really good. Uh, Page 305 through 306. The scene between John and Faraday is again lovely. The two have obviously grown to trust and respect each other. And, of course, they're playing chess. The obvious storytelling metaphor for intelligence and brinksmanship. Faraday knows John could escape and chooses not to. John knows that Faraday is the man for the job in the days to come. The final line, it's your move, King, Mm. is laced with subtext. Very potent. Very well done. It uh, only came through the other night when Adam was playing on Lord of the Rings. Mm. John looks like an (laughs) ant. He does a bit, because he doesn't look green in these pages, does he? He looks brown. Yeah, with his long fingers and stuff. Page 307. I like how the dinosaur looks huge compared to the Challenger ship. Yeah. But then you turn into the next page and boom, it's bigger. Yeah, it's even bigger than you thought it was. We said last week, didn't we, his depictions of dinosaurs Mm. are second only to his depictions of 50s Art Deco. There is something about them which looks a bit odd. If you... The necks, they look less like real things and more like robots in a theme park. Uh, I don't mind. I've never seen a dinosaur, so I don't know if it's lifelike or not. Uh, Again, Lois looks gorgeous on the bottom of page 308 which I liked a lot. Uh, page 309, you get the feeling that Coop really knows how to handle Superman. He does proper investigative journalism in his role as Clark Kent, and he brings Superman to play when it's things or events that no one else can handle. Big monsters turn up Tokyo, bring out Superman. Giant prehistoric creatures attacking Cape Canaveral, bring out Superman. And Cook depicts Superman beautifully, all raw power rather than muscled meathead. I love as well that when he's doing stuff, he's struggling. Yeah. Everything's not effortless to him. It's really, really, really well done. I really like this interpretation of the Man of Steel. Aquaman makes his first appearance at the end of this chapter, also aware of the centre, albeit as a children's nursery rhyme. And that's a lovely splash shot of him mm. on the last page, surrounded by hammerhead sharks and manta rays and big whales and stuff. It's great. Absolutely fantastic. Uh, for the first time in the story, Cook is having events cross over into different chapters as he revs up for the story of the finale. There are some character shifts as we learn of the, the growing Faraday on relationship and that Superman and Batman have been working together and the overarching threat is finally revealed. It's gorgeous this, isn't it? It is. I do, I do, I do worry that this episode is just going to be very repetitive. Well, we're up to two hours already. Are we? Yeah. Of us saying, God, this is good. Yeah. God, this is good. I really hope this isn't boring for people. <laughs> Chapter 12, The War That Time Forgot. The monster Superman took down is the source of the buzzing, even though it's dead. Further buzzing is imminent as Canaveral scrambles all fighters to 700 miles offshore, where the Navy has just lost six ships and four subs. Lois jumps aboard the chopper headed out, whilst the Professor calls Red back at Challenger Mountain to recon the area and then bring the warship to them at Canaveral. 
Wonder Woman arrives in an invisible plane, beaten and bloody, and crashes at the airfield. Over the Pacific, Red reports no island, whilst the challengers pick up Lois's TV report. She reports a large reptilian creature of immense size is transmitting a mental interference to cloud mines, and is tossing aircraft carriers around, and missiles, planes and ships are having no effect. When the pilot turns to get the hell out of Dodge, Lois reprimands him, but to no avail. Which is quite a short chapter, isn't it? It is. All things considered. Uh, I don't mean to be crude... But um, that's one hell of a flow to Wonder Woman's period on page 314. Trust you to make a period, yeah. <laughs> yes. um, Cook's depiction of an invisible plane using the pooling blood to give definition is pretty cool. Though um, maybe he couldn't have, have depicted Wonder Woman sitting in it. Mm. Yes, yes. I, I got a bad maybe feeling about it. Maybe she had a table where she lied down on it so it looked like she was flying. Uh, uh, yeah. Mm. Whatever. Uh, the blood effect's very effective when Superman rips the canopy off on page 316, though. It has to be said. Because it doesn't just make it look like he's ripping nothing off, though. Mm. It does give it definition, so I like that. Well, uh, while an invisible cool is both cool but stupid... An invisible cool. An imp- I can't say. While an invisible plane does seem quite cool and stupid... Both at the same time, uh, yeah. Yeah, it, it does beg the question of what are the Amazonians doing with an invisible version of an American wartime plane? Um, why do you think it's a wartime plane? Because I googled it yesterday. Oh, did you? Yeah. And why? It's, see, I always got the Wonder Woman's invisible plane is just an invisible plane. It's got no armament on it, has it? No, because Superman says what it is. Um, it's a prop plane, a P-51 Mustang. I googled P-51 Mustang and it was... That's a good point, that. I'd never considered that, because as far as I know, Wonder Woman's plane has never been given a type. Mm. So, oh yeah, okay. Fair play. Uh, there's a full-page shot of Superman lifting Wonder Woman out of the plane, where the look of anguish on his face is palpable. The effect is enhanced by the billowing black clouds in the sky. The colouring in this is gorgeous, isn't it? Yeah. The colouring never lets it down which is really, really cool. Uh, Lois's monochrome report is really well done as well, enhanced as it is by a two-page splash that shows the devastation wrought by the creature. Her reaction as the pilot turns to flee is primo Lois, isn't it? Yeah. Where he says, he's, we're getting out of here now. You cowards! Turn back! We are not leaving! And then he just does anyway. Mm. Well, the island that Lois describes as, re- uh, as a reptilian creature looks a lot more like the head of the aliens from Independence Day. It does. This entire ending yeah. reminded me of Independence Day. Yeah. Except this was better. Yeah, there is that. Oh, I like Independence Day. I think Independence Day is a fun popcorn movie. It's just this is better. This is better, because this has got the flash in it. Yeah. <laughs> automatically makes this better. And dinosaurs. So there you go, two elements <laughs> that instantly make this better than Independence Day. Chapter 13, Danger is Our Business. Word gets out quickly, and the government organises an immediate evacuation of the area, and Washington considers a nuclear response. Barry Allen watches the news with stark terror. Iris gives him the Flash costume and tells him to go. At Nellis, Faraday heads out and takes Jaon with him. Jaon adopts a more pleasing form, that of an agent, albeit with green skin, and he tells Faraday about the mental onslaughts. Faraday must keep an eye on him. Faraday says that that's a given. Besides, they won't be alive tomorrow. Hal Jordan sees the TV news. He wonders if Abin Sir was headed to Earth for this very reason, and decides he's off out to Canaveral. At Ferry Sir, he readies the prototype jet, but Carol tries to stop him. Hal says he never believed killing was an answer, but in Korea, he realised that he would kill to survive, if he had to. And that creature, if humanity is to survive, has to be killed. 
Against her protests, he steals a kiss and takes the prototype plane. Um, seeing that one, it's a very, very short chapter setting up how Hal Jordan gets involved, but it's the human moments amidst the carnage where Cook takes a moment to show how the fantastical affects the real people. The scene with Iris and Barry on page 322 and 323 gives us such a moment. Iris knows Barry needs to help, so she gives him the suit and her blessing, revealing that she knew he was the Flash, but also that he was her hero, mm. which I thought was really sweet. Lovely little bit. Um, oh, I wasn't overly fond of Faraday seeing real men wear pants. Yeah, John. The Martian Manhunter. Yeah, John takes on the form of the Martian Manhunter, doesn't he? Well, it, it's another one of those tips yeah. about the story when he's surrounded by people dressing up like they do. Yeah, and it must really suck to be Vandal Savage right now, stuck in a containment cell for what may seem like the rest of eternity. Yeah, well, can Vandal Savage says he's been to the island as well? Yeah, which Cook says he's true mm. in an issue of something or other at some point. Page three thirty through page thirty one. Is just more of the above. Uh, Hal and Carol have been playing the mating dance for a while now, and the shot of Hal kissing Carol as the jet engine ignites is one of the most romantic shots in the book. Adding a bittersweet taste to it is Hal's declaration of love for Carol that he deliberately does when she can't hear him over the roar of the engines. I do love that all the way through the book, Ace Morgan is called Hal Highball, and that's what he's got written on his helmet. Because yeah. in Galactica, I think that's a real thing, isn't it? Because in Galactica they used to have... Yeah. The names on the helmets as well. Uh, chapter 14 is the Boy Scouts' last. Wonder Woman tells of the Battle of Paradise Island where a homeland was decimated by the creatures. She comes to warn Superman that he would need to lead a united front. She steals a kiss before passing out, coughing blood. As the surgeons work, Superman looks out at his team, bickering, imperfect, petty and small-minded. He commands their attention demands that they put aside these differences and work together for freedom. King Faraday arrives and pledges allegiance to Superman because he knows that's what Wonder Woman would have done. Superman says he will try and communicate with the creature first, but he isn't confident, and if the worst happens, it will be up to them to stop this creature. Whatever it takes. Superman takes the fight to the creature but proves too much for him, and after the battle seems lost to the world, John sees it all through his connection to the centre and passes out. Um, the islands flight route seems to be very strange. See, it starts off in the Pacific. Yeah. Right. It, it, it then flies over to Themyscira. Okay. Right. Uh, which is in the Bermuda Triangle. Is it? Just off the coast of Florida. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, That's why it's warm all the time. Yeah. Um, so it would have had to have fly, uh, flown over Europe yeah. to get there undetected. So it would have had to fly over Europe undetected to get to Florida. Right. Or fly over America to attack Themyscira and then fly back to Florida. <laughs> um, I have no no prize for that. I'll take your word for that. <laughs> See, I couldn't. I couldn't no prize it now. Go on then. He, he was he was flying off. He was attacking Themyscira. And he's flying over in that direction. Then, oh, wait, what's that? That's a beeping signal. I remember I sent my dinosaurs off. Oh, they tell me to go back. Fair enough. Yeah. All right, I'll go with that. That's a legitimate no prize, despite this it's being a DC quite, book. Yeah, it's not quite silly, though. Um, yeah, well. The, the, we, we let geography slide in a lot of things, don't we? I yeah. think we've mentioned American Wolf in London before, haven't you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the hitchhiking over the Yorkshire Moors. Why does he get taken to a hospital in London? 
than, than how they go to Europe to no to London to Yorkshire to London again in the same day. Yeah, that's like being injured in Los Angeles and being taken to a hospital in New York. Yeah, it's a bit silly. Um, I mean, we'll cut that some slack because there's just so much right here in pages 335 through 342. Wonder Woman stealing a kiss before passing out and Superman's reaction. The relationship between the two of them has been very complex throughout this whole story. And I think here we see there's a definite attraction from her towards him. I don't know if that's reciprocated, but he certainly views her as a very, very close friend, doesn't mm. he? Uh, then we get Red Eye Superman which is a much overused visual in recent years. But I, I think Darwin Cook earns it here. Because for so the rest of it... This being the only time he uses this it. This is the only time he uses it. And for the rest of it, Superman is quite a passive good guy, isn't he? Yeah. And we see here that he's finally had enough and he's going to take charge. And it's, it's one of the things the story's been leading up to in many ways. Um, Superman's tried it our way and yet man still doesn't live up to his expectations. So they're going to listen to him now. It's a shock that it's Faraday who comes down on Superman's side, but not because he's soft, but because he's acknowledging the errors of judgment he's made in the past. Superman gives one of those stirring speeches that Superman does, and is introduced to John in a lovely little moment of humour, as John mentions the animated adventures he watched at the cinema, which I thought was just really quite funny. Mm. It's a pleasure, Mr. Jones. Likewise, sir. I greatly enjoyed your animated adventures in the cinema. Is that right, Data? <laughs> so, Mr. Data. I loved it. I thought it was really cool. I really did like that. Um, and after that huge build-up, mm-hmm. Superman's dispatched in a little over three pages. It's a killer ending to the chapter. Yeah. With the look of shock on everyone's face, because it's very much a where-do-we-go-from-here moment, isn't it? Yeah. It's an excellent couple of chapters. Cook never forgets the character beats, though, and whilst the Green Arrow doesn't trust the government, John is still an idealist, but in King Faraday we see that people can change. There's a very optimistic tone to this, even among the nihilism, as we realise that two heavy hitters of the DCU, Wonder Woman and Superman, have been taken out of the game. Chapter 15, Shall Earth Endure? On the moon, the Phantom Stranger, Dr. Fate, the Spectre, Zatanna and Billy, Captain Marvel, Batson debate whether they should interfere in the coming battle with the centre or should it be left to the next generation of heroes. On Earth, people try to cope. Lois Lane tries a news broadcast but breaks down, reporting on the death of Superman. Adam Strange is released from Arkham and Wayne Enterprises works with Lexco to route all available assistance to the Atlantic. Hal Jordan crashes the prototype and decides that he can't wait any longer. He's using the ring. With the aid of the ring, Hal is back up and flying. Strange locates Ray Palmer and tells him that his shrinking Ray may be the key to saving the world. Ray ignores the fact that Adam is strangely attired and they journey to Cape Canaveral where they, along with Dr. Magnus, Professor Haley, Haley and others, formulate a plan. Which is the end of the chapter. This was the first time throughout the story I had a superfluous spider sense tingle. Mm-hmm. Pages 343 through 348. The art is as ever lovely. I have to confess I found this little interlude with the more magical denizens of the DCU to be a little tiresome. Yeah. Um, I always recall these characters being tedious as a kid. The stranger shows up, spouts some cryptic gumph that the hero has to decipher to solve the problem of the day. And it always seemed like a waste of time. Oh, I like the fans of stranger. The, uh, All these... My problem nice is, to see Zatanna. Yeah. See, I'm not overly fond with these versions of the fan Stranger, Zatanna and Captain Marvel. See, I like all of these people, the Spectre, um, him, 
Doctor Fate. Doctor Fate. Yeah. The Captain Marvel's Tanner um Phantom Stranger. I like them all. But And the Spectre. They seem really lacking. Pompous. No, the the they were very lacking in this because they weren't um the Phantom Stranger, Tanner and Captain Marvel. They were Billy Batson, Zatanna and some bloke in a gown. Well, we've rarely seen the more magical element of the DC universe in this, have we? Mm. They were kind of run out of town in the 50s. and then. But the story's not been about them. And there's a part of me that's You could have at least seen Captain Marvel instead of Billy Batson, though. Yeah, you could have seen Captain Marvel instead of Billy Batson. These four pages could be excised mm. quite easily because the story's not been about them. They've had no impact on the story and they have no impact on the conclusion of the story. Yeah. It's like he's just thrown them in for the feeling that, well, I may not... Shoehorn extra characters. uh, Well, I may not get to draw the Spectre or Doctor Fate again. Mm. So I've thrown them in. I mean, it is only four pages of a 400-odd page story. So I'll I'll cut it some slack for that, but... It's the only time I've thought this is superfluous and isn't needed. Whereas the rest of the time... It's been exceptionally well paced, mm. I think. Um, the mention of Lexco does beg the question of what Lex Luthor's been up to throughout this entire story. And we only see him in one panel at the end, don't we? Yeah. But again, it's not a Superman story. It's John's story. It's King Faraday's story. It's a Green Lantern story or a Hal Jordan story. It's a Flash story. It's not really a Superman story. No. Although he does make some decisions and changes as he goes along, but it's not a Batman story either. No. Those characters are in it, but it's not the story. Is Batman even here at the end? Well, he's the. He's at Wayne Enterprises giving So orders. he's fighting as Bruce Wayne on yeah. the back line. Yeah, I think he shows up near the end somewhere. Great use of colour in the Green Lantern sequences, great use of colour green specifically. I love the little nod to the oath, which Hal doesn't know yet. When he puts his ring in the, yeah. the battery to recharge it, he says, um, it feels solemn, like. I should be saying something pithy and heroic, but he's not met the Guardians yet, no. so he doesn't know the Green Lantern Oath. I thought that was quite fun. I did like that. Um, there's a nice resolution to a piece of setup from a few years ago. Adam, as Michael pointed out, was seen reading a copy of Scientific American with Ray Palmer on the cover. Palmer is the atom in the regular DC comics, and these kind of little touches are all over this series. Well, he's not anymore. No, he's not well, anymore. Not yet. That's, that's very true. I like on page 354 you see Captain Adam and um, Palmer through the window. Yeah, just flying in. Yeah. And the, the two the guys pointing at him. Yeah. You get the feeling that's like that, that little exchange is like Superman the movie. What's out the window? Just fly. Don't watch. Just fly. I love that. Because mm. <laughs> those two guys are, what the? <laughs> really quite cool. Uh, page 355. The Flash knocking King Faraday on his arse what happened earlier. And later, page 357, telling Faraday telling the Flash that they need to put all this aside and work together as the entire plan hinges on the Flash. No pressure then. No. Chapter 16, The Dawn Patrol. The plan is explained. Palmer's reducing ray works. End of. Yeah. And the story ends. <laughs> uh, no, after a fashion. But the object shrunk can't maintain its integrity after a while and just goes poof. If the Flash can move at the speed of light, he can navigate the surface of the centre, exposing the living island to a dose of the ray piece by piece. Faraday explains that the centre wants the store of fuels kept here to aid it in its quest for the stars, and it intends to exterminate the human race. With the plan in place, Hal Jordan arrives, and along with the Blackhawks, everything is go. At that moment... 
the centre attacks. On land, Beastie swarmed the cape, leaving Jimmy Olsen vulnerable. At the last moment, he's saved by Wonder Woman. In the Ur, the Blackhawks, Challengers, Hall and others all swarm the island. Casualties are many, but Wonder Woman urges all to fight on. When all is suddenly overwhelmed by the burn of being in mental contact with the centre, King Faraday offers to draw the centre from him rather than kill Ja'on. Faraday succeeds, but the effort kills him. Faraday's death spurs Ja'on to drop the passive role he's played thus far and avenge his friend's death. He tears apart creature after creature, vowing that Faraday will not have died in vain. The challengers take the fight deep into the centre. Each member of the team sees something different on the inside as it all goes straight to hell. Head for the centre, screams Ace, and the others follow. Um, Faraday gives um, an inspiring speech, which is pretty much the same inspiring speech that you've ever heard in every film. Um, It's cheesy and cornball, about facing insurmountable odds, and yet they always work despite, or perhaps because, they're cheesy and cornball. There's nothing wrong with a piece, there's nothing wrong with a piece of fine cheddar and some corn. Okay. Every now and again. Um, and it culminates, culminates in a slow-motion walk towards oh, the walk. camera. Yeah, which is always great. Uh, you can see Lois Lane on the gantry above them. Apparently she had some dialogue hmm. that they just dropped when they saw the artwork. They decided that the art didn't need any dialogue. Um, I'd go with that. Because yeah. as it is, your eye would go to the dialogue. And you wouldn't actually take in that wonderful two-page spread of them all walking slow-mo, hero fashion. Um, in the heat of battle, it's once again the little character beats that resonate. Wonder Woman saves Jimmy, who's busy fundling for film, and then taking on the mantle of leader. But most touching is King Faraday, who gives his life for the creature he once hunted. John's reaction to his death is visceral. He's covered in blood just a few panels later, but it's a real fist-in-the-air moment when he takes on the form best known to comic fans mm. as the Martian Manhunter. What did Faraday do to John? Well, because... All he does really is touch him and then he burns up and all that. Does he have some kind of secret mental power we don't know about? Um, no, he just... I got that Faraday's humanity sweeps over John and it the essence travels from John to King Faraday. Um, because John does mention that it's, it's impossible that he's managed to do that. Yeah. But comic books are all about the impossible. So, I didn't think it was a, a... Go on, say it for me. What? De- uh, Merkina. Deus Ex? Machina? Yeah, that's the one. Because, to me, the entire story is built up to a number of things. Yeah. It's John realising that we are his home now. It's Hal Jordan's steps to becoming who he needs to become. And in, with King Faraday here, essentially, he's given his life for what used to resent and scur him because he's realised that John Johns isn't that different from him mm-hmm. in many ways but this the centre thing is the real evil Yeah, I, I liked it I thought it was really good and dies a bit quickly and mm. gruesomely with the fire coming from his eyes but I, I thought and it was a really nice the touch the next page is the most cartooniest page in this uh, series despite the fact that John Johns is ripping people a heart in half yeah look at that and that John yeah, Marsh Manhunter comes off as the most cartooniest yeah thing. and yet the bloody reality of what he's doing mm. juxtaposes with the fact that he has become the Martian Manhunter yeah I don't disagree with you I think the drawings of John are cartoony I think they're deliberately cartoony 
because it offsets because the fact inspired that inspired by cartoons. Yeah, and two pages later, yes, and two pages later, and two panels later, so he's ripping things to shreds. Mm. So there's an inter- interesting little juxtaposition. He, he, he should there. be dead anyway. Yeah, probably. Um, may you be in heaven. A half hour before the devil knows you're dead is an old Irish proverb, I believe. Um, that I think I first read in Hellblazer. Yeah. Is it? Um, it stuck with me because I thought it was a really cool saying. Mm. I like that. There's a person that thinks, yeah. And may you be drinking a pint of Guinness and sat there with your feet up before he knows you're there and all. Um, I really like page 376 and onwards. The, the wacky effects and the bright colours. That worked very yeah, well. Yeah, the, the, the 2001 psychedelic ending. Yeah. Where everything goes straight out the window. Take this and listen to some Hendrix. Yeah. <laughs> Take the blue pill, <laughs> put some Jimi Hendrix on, you'll be fine. Um, the action breaks here, like uh, Michael's just mentioned, it's very 2001. There's a surrealistic light show. Personally, it seems a very odd place for a chapter break as the action's really starting to hot up. Art wise. Yada, 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 fantastic. The shot on page 369 of Wonder Woman, taken from Jimmy's camera. The planes, the gung-ho attitudes, John covered in blood, his face so calm and serene for most of the story, grimacing in anger to the psychedelic ending, all wonderful. I have to confess, it's my preference for the more grounded look of the early chapters, seeing the fantastic amidst the ordinary, but there's no denying the power of these couple of pages as the ships swoop into the centre like uh, the X-Wings attacking the Death Star yeah gorgeous absolutely gorgeous chapter 17 the pure rugged Hal finds the centre turring at his mind all the planes are in free fall the G-force is phenomenal but as the centre splits his mind apart it is in that mind that he finds strength Carol the ring survival as his plane explodes, the ring kicks in and saves him with an aura that protects him. The centre's brain, or whatever it is, is swarming and the pilots, and only Ace and Nathaniel Adam are left. Believing Hal to have been killed when his plane exploded, the men engage the bomb manually. Hal tries to extend his aura around both pilots, but is too late to save Adam. The atomic explosion begins. Hal somehow can move faster than that and manages to get to Ace just in time. The purse streak away as the explosion rips the centre from within. With the centre in turmoil, it's time for the Flash to go into action. With Ray Palmer's device strapped to his back, the Flash exposes the island to the rays, little by little, but at the speed of light, exposing the whole island in a short span. With the island visibly decreased, Flash is saved from doom by Wonder Woman, but the explosion could still be catastrophic. Green Lantern arrives, drops Ace into the sea and contains the explosion in a bubble of purest green. Struggling against the onslaught, Hal feels his mind connect with the guardians of the universe, who inform him that they hold the power of the battery and he has the key to that battery, the ring that works on sheer force of will. Hal focuses and gives the center what it wants by hurling it into space. The celebrations go on into the night, but the festivities are interrupted. A large seagoing vessel rattles up onto the beach. The heroes ready themselves, but a blonde man from Atlantis brings forth a body, still alive, but a little worse for wear. Superman. Apparently, he's been asking for a Lois Lane? Jimmy Olsen snaps a photo that will, no doubt, be on the front page of tomorrow's Daily Planet. The line about the G's being pulled by the pilots being enough to make the puke that would be arising from their throats if it wasn't forcing it back is both poetic and disgusting. Mm. Poetically disgusting. Poetically disgusting. Or disgustingly poetic. Oh, both, yeah. Um, page 380, I like how the centre's facade 
is really bright and colourful and fascinating, but when Hal uses the ring to see what it really is, mm. it's quite disgusting. Yeah, it's really good, isn't it? It's really well-paced. It's a really good action scene. There's some lovely little touches, specifically on pages 366... Uh, and 383 that Aquaman is doing his bit for the fight but he's doing it out of sight of the human race the fish are seen keeping the tidal waves at bay and after capsizing the challengers get rescued by dolphins Mm -hmm. which again I thought was a lovely little touch Uh, page 384 through 385 once again has superlative depictions of the flash and his speed well um, we we get to the island close up here yeah now we saw the island at the beginning as an actual island yes so when did Dinosaur Island turn in to get replaced by a floor of dinosaurs in a lazy orgy? Lazy orgy. Um, well, there's an awful lot of it you didn't see because it was underground. But, yeah, there is, like, well, where did the forests go? And yeah. And is Thingyo's grave still on here? The losers. Oh, yeah. The losers are still buried on here somewhere, aren't they? <laughs> it would have been nice to have seen, maybe not seen the dead bodies. That would have been <laughs> a bit great. Flying is the explosion. Yeah, but maybe it would have been nice to see the gravestones or something one last time. What, like the flash. flash yeah, past them. Flash wouldn't have known what they were, but it would have been nice to have them in the background or something as the Flash does what the Flash does, yeah. yeah. Page 388. Green Lantern's conversation with Ace is funny as he adopts a mask. I'm shy, replies Hal, and then drops Ace into the drink before a one-page splash on 389 as the Guardians finally make contact. The centre cannot hold, notes Hal at this point, proving that he knows his poetry. Um, <clears throat> actually, this poem, The Second Coming by William Butler Yeats, has inspired a lot of science fiction and pop culture storytelling just off the top of my head and I did no research on the internet for this okay. so I just want that out there um, there's an episode of Angel called Slouching Towards Bethlehem which is referenced a lot in Babylon 5 it's also the title of an episode of The Sopranos it's referenced in V for Vendetta Kevin Smith's comic The Widening Gaia or Jaya and Peter David quoted it extensively in an issue of The Incredible Hulk and they're just off the top of my head hmm. so I'm sure there's many more occasions where that poem has appeared somewhere um, I thought this was a joyous ending Yeah. well I'm a little bit miffed by bringing Superman back because you know what I think about it. if you're going to sacrifice a character nobly yeah. then sacrifice them um, this is more my personal bias against stories that sacrifice characters You know, it goes all the way back to the last Starfighter when I was 12 where the, the character dies in the middle and at the end he's oh well, it's okay it was just a scratch no you were dead dude that, that's how films go yeah the first reel we find out who they are second reel they die third reel they come they back they come back um that said this isn't Superman's story is it it's Hal's and John's and Barry Allen's and, and maybe a bit of King Faraday's and Superman's done his bit he's united everybody so they take him off the stage which is very similar to what happens in the recent Avengers movie where a particular character was taken off stage to unite the others and of course it has precedence in other tales as well Lord of the Rings Gandalf is taken aside so Frodo can step up Dumbledore gets removed so Harry Potter can do what he needs to do and so it's not without precedent that this happens normally this would have been a very good Independence Day style ending to the story but there's still one final chapter Epilogue The New Frontier The pioneers gave up their safety their comfort and sometimes their lives to build our new west they were determined to make the new world strong and free an example to the world some would say that those struggles are all over that all the horizons have been explored that all the battles have been won, that there is no longer 
and American frontier. And we stand today on the edge of a new frontier, the frontier of unknown opportunities and perils. Beyond that frontier are uncharted areas of science and space, unsolved problems of peace and war, unconquered province of ignorance and prejudice. I'm asking each of you to be pioneers towards that new frontier. My call is to the young in heart, regardless of age. Can we carry through in an age where we will witness not only new breakthroughs in weapons of destruction, but also a race for mastery of the sky and the rain, the ocean and the tide, the far side of space, and the inside of men's minds. All mankind waits upon our decision. A whole world looks to see what we shall do. And we cannot fail that trust, and we cannot fail to try. With John F. Kennedy accepting nominations as the Democratic candidate, the future looms large. But when Starro attacks, the JLA stand by. Um, this epilogue is a lot epilogue. This epilogue is a lot longer than that, framed as it is by Kennedy's New Frontier speech given at the Democratic National Convention nomination acceptance address on the 15th of July 1960. Underneath the speech, Cook depicts the irony of the statement that all the frontiers have been crossed, with shots of a young African-American boy standing near the white's only drinking fountain, and the optimism of the words with the conquering and exploration of new frontiers of science and understanding. Along the way, we see the Joker, Lex Luthor, as an example of Kennedy's notes that many have lost their way, and the formation of the Justice League. Um, it's a lovely little ending, embodying the spirit of the Silver Age of comics, that heroism and the thirst for knowledge wasn't enough for money or glory, but because it was noble and the right thing to do. Um, the Absolute Edition has a number of sketches and text pieces to complement the main story. The front and back covers of the original miniseries are here, along with annotations of the main story. There are a number of lovely little headshots and sketches, well worth checking out if you get the chance. Um, I mentioned last week that I felt that these hardcover Absolute Editions and Omnibuses, and especially IDW's Treasury Editions, are the future of print comics in that they depict the art in such a beautiful way that even the best digital readers and standard-sized comics can't replicate, and I stand by that. Whilst these are expensive and take away the disposable nature and easy accessibility of the comics of the past, let's be honest, comics haven't been accessible for nearly 20 years now, and the companies don't seem to want to make them accessible. So these larger formats are just gorgeous. I really hope we've done this story justice over these past couple of weeks, as this is easily one of my favourite comic series of recent times. The story's pulpy, but has deeper themes and something to say. The art is gorgeous, the characters relatable and interesting. It's quite simply everything I want from my comic hell. It's everything I want from my entertainment. Yeah. Full stop. Um, do you have any final thoughts? Um, not really. Not really. <laughs> you don't even have it. Yeah, that was good. It was. I enjoyed doing that. It was good. It was enjoyable. It is. It's fantastic. It really, really is very. If you've not read it, track a copy down. Like I said last week, I read some of this digitally because it was easier when I was making notes in my dinner hour to have it digitally than to carry this absolute around with me. But the absolute is gorgeous. The digital doesn't do it justice. 
this oversized format is just simply brilliant. Yeah, it's very strange as well if you think about it. I think the art would have been as good as it is here if it was in black and white. Probably. Okay. I think Cook's art would have because those are lovely black and white image of Wonder Woman. Yeah. At the back of the absolute. It. I think the color. Oh, there's no denying that the coloring's brilliant. Yeah. The whole package is excellent. There's no denying that. Um, I, I think, like that. I yeah, prefer that to the original. Page. Yeah. Um, there's black and white images at the back and pages that he scrapped. There's an alternate ending that he scrapped because he didn't feel it worked. There's pencil sketches of the um, trade covers. of the trade paperback covers. Yeah, it's it's all the action figures, which I really. It's like, why, why have we got a Blackhawk dude instead of someone who was actually in it? Yeah, why have we got a Blackhawk instead of John Johns? Yeah. That <laughs> doesn't make and sense. And Green Arrow, who's only in the last chapter. Who's, who's only in the last chapter, yeah. Um, but on the whole, it's fantastic. Next week, we'll be looking at the movie and comparing the movie to the comic book. Uh, we'll hope that it does it justice. Uh, thank you for indulging us in what is the longest episode we've ever done. Yeah. I do apologise for that. Um... You can always break where we stop talking about the emails and then listen to this one separately if you want to. Um, but that's it for this week. If you emailed in, thank you very much. Continue to do so. If you want to get in touch with us via anywhere, Facebook, email us, whatever. Remember, we do read the emails on the show because I tend to forget when people have Facebook messaged me. Because mm-hmm. it's such a long time between us reading the Facebook and recording the episode and then the episode going up that that's why email... If you want to be hit read on the show, email is the best. Um, um, Luke mentioned whatever's coming up next we've got a couple of ideas for what's coming up next haven't we Yeah. we want to do a couple of Michael's favoured New 52 books I've got the Judas contract on tap so we're doing that are we yes I think we should do the Teen Titans the Judas contract how much did it cost I don't know why 30 pieces no it wasn't 30 pieces of soul very good I'm very impressed well done. I like that guy. I was going to do it. Be very proud of yourself. Though. I am. Uh, so we'll be back next week. Thank you for joining us. Bye bye. Bye. used in the show are copyright the respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended. Michael and Andrew make no money for this, much to their chagrin. New episodes drop every Thursday at apleyland.podomatic.com but you can also listen through our Facebook page 
which you can friend us on by using Hey Kids as the first name and Comics as the second name. You can also listen on our website where you can also view the covers of the comics we've covered this week. That's www.heykidscomics.webspace.virginmedia.com If you have an opinion on our opinions, you can email us on heykidscomics at virginmedia.com we also have a forum, www.forumforgeeks, all one word, .com, where you can drop by and say hello if you're allergic to email. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics. Hey Kids Comics.